you're listening to the Surf Simply podcast, bringing you news and opinion about surf culture, characters, coaching and competition from the team at the Surf Simply Coaching Resort. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses, go to surfsimply.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 56 of the Surf Simply podcast. We're recording on Monday, the 12th of February, 2018. My name is Harry Knight, and with me today is Rue Hill. Hello, everybody. Asha King. Hey, guys. And Tommy Potterton. Hello, everyone. We have a new security guard at the resort whose name is Richard, and he's a very nice guy, and he's very enthusiastic, and he asks a lot of questions, the pertinence of which is, is not all, always immediately obvious to me. And last night, he slightly had me cornered by the car and was on like non-pertinent question number 10, and I was like backing towards my car, smiling and nodding. And then I got into the car to drive away and sort of said, buenas noches. And I shut the door and he was looking through the window at me. And I realized I'd got into the passenger side of my car. <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and I didn't want to get back out because I felt like that was a sort of admission of defeat. <laughs> and so we sort of kept eye contact as I sort of climbed sideways over the gear stick. And then um, just sort of said cheerio and drove off in my car. Dignity in smooth. no way intact. Yeah, smooth. smooth. You, you know what his next question for you is, isn't it? What was that? He's going to ask why you get in your car on the right-hand side. <laughs> <laughs> so other, other, than, uh, other than getting into the car on the wrong side, have you been up to much? Um, it's been an interesting week here in Costa Rica. So We've had elections. We've had elections. I've, I've been lucky, and actually you have as well, Harry. You've got to know her a little bit, but I've been lucky enough to become friends with a really cool lady called Claudia Dobles, who is one of the designers at Gensler, who has been working with us designing our new resort, which we're going to talk about a little bit more later on in the show. And she nearly became, and may well still become, Costa Rica's first lady, because her husband is one of the presidential candidates. And I didn't actually realise when they were here about, I guess it was a year ago, and we all met in the office at Surf Simply, and uh, she was one of the architects, so we were walking around the resort, looking at how everything operated and, and where the sort of the... the like prohibitive points of, of flow in terms of the daily use of the of the property was kind of going on and talking through all the kind of day-to-day running of a hotel. And uh, there was this very patient, really nice guy uh, coming along behind her the whole time with one child strapped to the front and like one to the back. And yeah, just really nice guy. Anyway, I had no idea that he was running for president. And then they had the elections, I think it was, a, it was last week sometime. And um, yeah, and he, there, there was two people that came in at the top, one guy called Fabricio and Carlos, um, both with the same last name, Alvarado. Not related. Not related. Definitely not related, I think. And uh, neither of them got a big enough majority to become president. So now what they do is have another round of elections at the beginning of April, and it's just between these two guys. And this is kind of like Costa Rica's Trump Brexit. Although in this case, it's not kind of the the xenophobic nationalism that's the that's the kind of the bad side. It's the like homophobic traditional religious guy. Fabricio, um, who has actually got a slightly higher percentage of the vote. So, and it's funny, like, you know, we were talking before about how Facebook and Google kind of create these echo chambers. And I don't know a single person in Costa Rica who is voting for Fabricio. Everyone that I know is voting for PAC, which is uh, Carlos's party. And, but, you know, the the majority of the country apparently is still kind of on on the side of Fabricio. So on the 1st of April, Costa Rica is either going to move progressively forward and um, have same-sex marriage and all kinds of good things, or it's going to kind of be dragged kicking and screaming back into religious dogma, which will just really, really suck. So anyone out there who has any power to help, like, do some good in Costa Rica, it would be really good if we we can get more people voting for PAC. 
Very cool. Tommy, you been up to much? Yeah. Are you well again? You, you gave me quite a few editing points on the last show. Lots yeah, of uh, coughs and splutters. I'm, I'm back to health. I got back just in time for a, a longboarding session with Asher and Callum kindly took some photos of us. So we got some good Instagram fodder. I think it's worth pointing out for the listeners as well. You actually had full-blown pneumonia. Yeah, I was ill for four weeks solid. I'm slowly getting better. Yeah. yeah. And Tommy lives in a house, which is something of a sort of, it's right by the beach and it's a really cool house and lots of people like to hang out there in the evening out on the porch after surfing and whatnot. And you were sort of just in your bedroom, which is right next. There's like a thin wooden door between yeah. Tommy's bed and where everyone hangs out. And Tommy was just in there like a sickly child coughing away while with everyone's sitting outside. <laughs> in a world of misery. But yeah, back to health. Feeling good. Awesome. And I think I've had the sickness passed on to me because I am not <laughs> up to health. So any listeners, I apologize if I'm a bit quieter or nasally today. But yeah, I got a little head cold, so... It's all right. You got your cup of tea there. Yeah, it's all right. I'm, I'm, I'm on the tea. I've had, this is my first cup of Earl Grey tea, and it's pretty nice. For someone who is not feeling 100%, you were doing some pretty epic surfing during your photo shoot with Callum. Oh, I was, I was feeling okay then. But yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Um, our, our photographer at Surf Simply, who's going to be in an interview later in this podcast, yeah, he's really passionate about shooting outside of work, which is fun. And we've been able to get some good photos for the apparel line, so... Yeah, it's been a really good time. Yeah, he's very talented. He's a great addition to the team. And um, he also has a haircut like one of the characters out of Peaky Blinders, which I've got a lot of respect for. <laughs> yeah. uh, that photo that he posted of you today on our Instagram, I can't, even though I've looked at it a bunch of times, I can't figure out where he was when he took it. It's like you're hanging 10 and he's taken it with a fisheye lens from underneath the nose of the board looking up. Is that right? So it was actually hanging heels. So my, my, my feet are backwards. And he was shooting with, a, I think, a either a 20 or a 25 millimeter so he was actually like directly under the nose of my board and i almost gave him an even closer haircut uh with the fin shortly after that that's a wicked photo but yeah when the waves are small we, we calum and i were laughing that it's super fun to shoot photos with a photographer when the waves are really small on a longboard because you can kind of just put yourself in the position again and again or when the waves are really big and barreling so that's like the two extremes are, yeah. the, are the most fun so we've had a pretty good time with that very cool how about you, Harry? What have you been up to? Uh, actually, I've been hurting myself trying to do a service on a, a two-stroke engine. Um, so all the time I was worried about you crashing your ridiculous flying machine into a tree. And yeah. actually, you were able to severely injure yourself without leaving the ground. Without leaving the ground, yeah. It, um, because it's a flying machine, um, it, they, they recommend you do a service every so many hours and because I bought it second, yeah kind of important and because I bought it second hand it's it's reached that number of hours quite quite quickly so I set out I've never stripped an engine down at all and the first time I kind of took the cylinder head off and like pulled the piston out and changed the piston rings I was terrified it was horrible uh, and actually that bit of it was okay and then there were a couple of other bits that were just I didn't have the tools that I needed like I need a rivet gun to do something on the exhaust pipe. And it's really difficult. But I like to do all DIY, not with the proper tools, and then just finding some kitchen equipment and trying to make do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'd like to point out that the consequences of a mistake are pretty high. Well, on the, the motor strapped to your back while you're flying through the air. Yeah, they are a little <laughs> higher than normal. But um, anyway, I got it all back together and I was, we were trying to problem solve something. Um, it, it was running fine, but it wouldn't rev very high. And so I was working with a mechanic to try and figure out why it wasn't going to full revs and at one point i reached across and put my uh the inside of my wrist quite hard against the exhaust pipe and so i have a big 
burn on the inside of my arm. That looks pretty bad. Does yeah. that mean you have to wear your watch on your other wrist? Which is now making me wear my watch on my right arm. That's and weird, isn't it? Well, the thing is, I can't work out which I dislike more, having a watch on my right wrist or not having a watch, because both of them are horrible. After you showed me that, I thought, Harry is so clumsy. He's always hurting himself. <laughs> I love that you watch your watch exactly as I said that. <laughs> I was thinking Harry is so clumsy. And then that evening I was putting up lights on our patio and I stuck my hand through the fan on our patio and it went right into my wrist. Oh, look at that. And You've I got a stick marker out. on the other side of your wrist. <laughs> I had to paddle out the next morning with my watch on my opposite wrist. And I was like, <laughs> oh, this is really weird. I don't like it at all. Um, so, yeah. But no, I, I, I eventually got it all back together. Turns out I'd, um, I'd put a lot of the padding material that's inside the silencer or the muffler for you, uh, for you Americans when I'd put the exhaust back together and put the new material in, uh, some of it had blocked the exhaust pipe. So it couldn't, uh, it couldn't breathe enough to ah. go to full revs. So listeners out there who are concerned about Harry's paramotor engine, you can rest easy. You can rest easy. <laughs> I'm, I'm back in the air, which is lovely. Um, before we move on to the news and the current affairs of the world, uh, just a couple of quick follow-ups. Um, I, I did adjust the show notes accordingly, but for those of you that don't go to our show notes, you are missing out, first of all. I, I do a, a big set of show notes for each edition that we do and, and lots of links and all the videos and photos that we talk about. But in the last episode, Rue, you recommended the Overcast app. Um, I think, yeah, but I think I called it the Outcast app, didn't you did, I? Yeah. And I would like to say to the owners of the Overcast app that Outcast is a much better name and I think that they should change it. You know, Overcast is like a grey, miserable day. Outcast is like we are podcasting outside the realms of society. We're breaking new ground. So there you go. Did, did I get the name wrong or did they get the name wrong? <laughs> the debate continues. Anyway, yes. Uh, so, so there's that little correction. Um, <laughs> I feel like you've been waiting to say it since, <laughs> since we realised that. That's pretty good. And then um, off the back of my piece, I haven't had anyone uh, writing in to tell me how many uh, fanny packs they've bought, unfortunately. <laughs> so I will say our new surf coach, Teal, went and bought a lower lumbar pack. She yeah, did. I was talking to her about it afterwards and she was just like, I don't know why you were laughing at Harry. Fanny packs are awesome. Yeah, there you go. I rest my case. But anyway, a couple of people have gotten in touch to uh, tell us about the things that they bought. Uh, Tom Tobin bought a, uh, a goof board, which is one of those like balance boards that are on a roller, but this one works rail to rail, so you can kind of practice cross-stepping on it. I've just Googled the goof board. Is that wingnut? Yeah. Yeah. Cruising on a goof board. Who else indeed. would be cruising on the goof board? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Had to be oh, wingnut. That's amazing. Um, and Joe Benjamin uh, got in touch to say that he has been wearing a, uh, a gaff helmet with uh, the pull-down visor, which uh, he really likes for keeping the sun out of his eyes in the, uh, in the afternoons. I like to just wear those during sex. <laughs> <laughs> That's delightful. Um, and lastly, Amir Aliabadi, I hope I pronounced your name right, Amir, sorry if I didn't, um, recommended, he, he bought a road bike in 2016, a road bicycle, and uh, feels that's changed his life. He said, I, I got a crazy idea to start uh, riding a bike to work and realised that doing this on my mountain bike would be pretty hard work, so I bought a road bike. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Why is riding a mountain bike on a flat road really hard? It seems to me, not being a big cyclist, mm -hmm. very easy. I think it's all relative and it would be a bit like saying what's the problem with trying to do a big aggressive vertical top turn on a 7-2 egg. Yeah, it's um it's not impossible to do it's just not the most optimized piece I wouldn't of equipment. Have thought that there was well, it's just cuz the tires thicker and there's more friction. If you ever ride a road bike it's amazing. Yeah. Much lighter. Yeah. 
Uh, it's much lighter. The thinner tires are a lot more efficient. Plus, it doesn't have suspension. He sounded like he's a big mountain biker. So if you have front and back suspension, it's super, super inefficient when you're going on flat ground. I've recently upgraded my beach cruiser with no gears to a beach cruiser with three gears. Ooh. The tires are so flat that the metal is almost touching the road. <laughs> and But the fact that it's got three gears makes me feel like I'm on a real sort of high-performance machine. Oh, there you go. So, yeah, I guess this guy's <laughs> in a slightly different league to me. Anyway, he says, why has this changed my life? It has given me a new perspective on time. I am much less rushed. A good hour each way on my commute gives me time to think about things and life. I'm not sure what it is, but I'm able to think more clearly when riding versus sitting in a car or taking the bus to work. And uh, I can I can go with that. I used to cycle into work when I lived in London, and and I much preferred like riding to work through the streets rather than jumping on a bus. Yeah, I really really like this point. Um, since getting a dog, I now you know have this routine of walking the dog in the morning, walking the dog in the evening. Yeah, likewise. And it just gives you time and space. You've got kind of no purpose for your walk other than walking the dog. So you've just got this kind of empty space to start your day or to finish your day. Mm -hmm. All right. So on your morning bike ride to work or morning dog walk, podcast or no podcast? I like to go podcast when I'm walking on the beach and I go with a music Spotify when I'm cycling on the beach because the speed of the bicycle I feel <laughs> goes well with the, you laugh, but it's true. I was cruising along the beach last night at low tide, just watching the sunset, yes, listening to Anderson nice. pack really loudly. It was amazing. Mm -hmm. um, I very rarely have a, a, I'm very fortunate that I very rarely have a very busy or stressed mind. So normally I just like the open space and the air, but sometimes you know, when you've got a lot going on in your life, it's nice to have a podcast to just kind of divert you away and just keep you on a, a one-track walk. So I don't know if you guys have seen this doing the rounds, but there was a study recently, I haven't got it in front of me, and it was, it was research into which smartphone apps make you more miserable and which make you more happy. And like the broad brushstrokes was that social media and games make you more miserable and podcast apps and fitness and meditation apps make you happier. Wait, wait, wait. You're telling me this after you invite me to play chess with friends. <laughs> yes, but that's chess with friends. <laughs> There's no way that chess is making me I, more miserable. I had my first game of chess on chess with friends this morning with Ollie, and I only know one set piece in chess, which is the checkmate in four. And I got him first time. <laughs> I think I'm just going to walk away, just delete the app and be like, oh, I'm not playing you again. Ollie. You're already no using terminology <laughs> that I do not know. Yeah, right. I, I already do not know set with four. <laughs> I think poten potentially with Facebook, it depends on how you use it. You can block out the news and the negative stuff and just have, you know, videos of cats jumping. Well, <laughs> or whatever, gonna... whatever, you, whatever makes you laugh. We're, we're that's, gonna... that's your Instagram feed, isn't it, Tommy? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's my life. <laughs> okay, rolling into the news then, and lots of WSL news uh, for this edition. We'll get into that in a minute. Before we get into that, uh, one big thing that's happened since our last episode is that the non-disclosure agreements have run out on all the various surf media outlets that got to go and play in Kelly Slater's wave pool a few months ago. The internet's been full of videos and articles about people uh, people going up and riding the wave pool. It's been pretty interesting. And there's before we go any further, I'm going to uh, recommend listeners that, that two podcasts that you might want to just go and listen to the at least the start of. There's a Surf Splendor episode with Matt Warshaw and Jamie Brissick, uh, which is super interesting with them talking about their experience. And then the Spit podcast uh, with David Scales and Scott Bass talking about their experience there. And both of them, I think, uh, brought up some, some really interesting conversations about 
what this uh, what this wave pool is going to do to the future of surfing. And Scott Bass, very much the godfather of surf podcasting. Yes, indeed. I think he was making down the line back when there was only three or four people listening to podcasts in the entire world. <laughs> I think he's been making it since it was just FM radio. <laughs> yeah, it was just local San Diego radio, wasn't it? Anyway, he uh, just uh, some really interesting thoughts there. And it, it, it was, I mean, for me, it was quite cool just to see some more average Joe type people, people like you and me riding that wave pool. It, from from what everyone's been saying, it doesn't sound like it's too difficult. Like I remember when we were all looking at it a couple of years ago when those first videos came out and we were looking at that takeoff and thinking it looked pretty tough. Um, but it sounds like actually it's it's not too bad. Yeah, I was pretty impressed with how they surfed it. I think they're all pretty competent surfers and yeah, they all had a really, really good time. So it, it kind of checks the box whether it's accessible for the everyday surfer. Mm. Um, if you were going to the wave pool, what now that you've seen kind of layman surf it? What kind of board would you ride? Ooh, That's a tough question. That is a tough question. It's like it's not just a perfect canvas. It's it's a pretty tight pocket. It moves really fast. I was saying to you on the beach the other day that I thought something like a hip toe would would work really nicely. But I wonder whether you'd want a bit more rocker in the nose than that. I was watching that Taylor Knox video, apply pressure. It's beautiful rail surfing, and he was riding one of those old kind of you know more, more kind of thinner longer more rocker kind of boards all the way through the movie because it just complements his surfing really well because it's so much powerful rail surfing anyway yeah he was riding that in the wave pool and making it look really good that looked amazing and yeah i think you could probably ride a board given how perfect that wave is and how much curl is it i actually think you, you wouldn't want something as flat and wide as a hip toe i think you'd want something you know more like a kind of a, a proton kind of competitive shortboard you know, because you, you know where you know where you're going to be to catch mm -hmm. the wave. It's not like you've got to do a lot of paddling. You're going to get into it, and then once you're up and going, I don't know. I, th I think that's what I'd want. Yeah, I think I don't know. I hardly ever ride shortboards these days, but I hardly ever ride shortboards because the waves are hardly ever perfect. Mm. Uh, I think in my ideal wave, I would love to surf a board like that. So I think yeah, the high performance three fin might might make a comeback. Yeah. What about you, Tommy? I'd love to be able to be surfing a shortboard at that wave, but I don't think. That's happening anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> what about a longboard with a traction pad? Yeah, longboard with a traction pad <laughs> and three tiny fins. A very, longboard. <laughs> very high leash. Now, it's funny watching more average, or I mean, they're above average surfers, but, you know, sub pro level surfers ride the wave because it kind of lures you into these halfway in-between turns where you, you can't really do a roundhouse, but you can't really attack the lip. And I, I think there's so many coaching benefits for a wave like that. Yeah. Because it's so, of everything that I go over with our level four guests, it's always really, really tough to teach them the more down carve style turns where it's not a vertical attack, but it's, it, you, you aren't bringing the board 180 or, you know, even further uh, back around to the pocket. So, man, just being able to try that again and again and again and doing turns without losing speed and using turns to, keep up with the pace of the wave, I think oh, it'd be so much fun to coach there. I'm sure that we'll get the chance pretty soon. Hopefully so. Hopefully so. So rolling on, like I said, lots of news about the, uh, the WSL. They have a new head judge, Richie Porter, who's been the head judge, has stepped down. And I, again, I hope I'm pronouncing this name correctly, but uh, Pritamo Arendt. I think if the Australian commentators in the WSL can just confidently say Adriano D'Souza, for years and years without anyone pulling them up on it, we can say Pratamo or Rent with confidence, knowing <laughs> that it might be a bit wrong and it's fine. Fair enough. Um, now, was Richie Porto, was, did he step down or was he pushed aside? Nothing I've read it seems to suggest that he was, uh, he was pushed. But. Yeah, this, the, the press release said something along the lines of Richie Porto will be assuming a new backroom role 
uh, advising on uh, nuances in the criteria. And I just imagine him getting locked in this back room for all the bad calls he's made over the years. Just having to review Kelly Slater's 4.17 at lowers where he fell off. I don't know. I mean, I, I think that head judge, I mean, the, the fact that there is a head judge is a bit of a contentious thing anyway. You know, none of the Olympic sports that are scored in that way with the Winter Olympics being on at the moment, but you know, th- there isn't a head judge for figure skating. No. All the judges give their independent view and, and you roll forward from there. So the fact that there's a head judge at all is a bit, is a bit weird, but it's such a thankless job because if you get it wrong, everyone comes down on you. And if you get it right, no one cares. No one notices. Kind of like being a politician. Yeah, to me, it just seems like it defeats the purpose of having a blind judging panel. I totally agree with you. Why is there a head judge? If you're you're trying to, I mean, we've talked about this a lot on the show before, but, you know, what you should be trying to do is, from a competitive point of view, is trying to make the judging as objective as possible. Mm -hmm. And and the, the more effectively it's blinded, then the, the better that's going to be. And having someone literally walk behind looking for outliers and then nudging them in is, is exactly the opposite of objective judging. And I mean, there may be, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot more to the head judge role than that. But yeah, I just, I think that that's, I agree with you. I don't think that's something that should be happening, at least that aspect of that role. Yeah. But then there is a difference as well between like essentially trying to do the judging as scientifically and objectively as possible mm-hmm. and remembering that really a WSL contest is not a scientific uh, study. It's an entertainment event. So see, I, one of the things I was wondering, and I, I know you've done a, a fair bit of judging in your time, Rue, Asher and Tommy, have you guys, I've done a hefty amount of low consequence amateur contest. Because <laughs> I'm very sorry for everyone. Well, that I Because one of the things that I do wonder is, you know, it, 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 in a similar way, like I think most surf contests are run at quite an amateur level. I mean, I, I even ended up judging the British nationals and it was still pretty amateur. Like the judging side of it was, was pretty amateur and you almost needed that head judge just overlooking because people were swapping it. You know, judges were swapping in and out all the time. And But then what's the point in having a judging panel? You might as well just have the head judge do well, it. Well, no, no, no. But just to, to just to make sure that nobody was like, everybody else put down a five and somebody else put down an eight. It's like, ah, oh, hey, Harry, like, I know you've only just stepped up. The rest of the guy's been on. Like that's probably closer to a fight. You might want to come down a couple of points because you're 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 a long way out of kilter with what everybody else is doing. But I wonder if that surely shouldn't be necessary by the time you're talking about WSL contest. Yeah, because that process isn't about making that heat scored fairly. That process is about having a mechanism where judges are learning how to judge better while they're judging. Mm-hmm. But by the time guys are judging world title contests, that shouldn't yeah, be that, a that should already be built into their skill set. If one judge judge has an outlying opinion then you know that that should be taken into consideration i mean well as it happens the highest and lowest scores are thrown out anyway yeah so. but but i wonder whether i wonder whether that head judge position has just almost existed like as the contests have become more and more and more and more professional actually the need for the head judge has almost evaporated but the position has stayed almost just as a legacy thing last year when i was in bali uh traveling through indo uh I surfed in the Deus uh, Slidetoberfest event, and after I got knocked out of the event, I did some judging for him. Mm-hmm. Dustin Humphrey had me come up to the tower, and I, I did probably like like the quarterfinals on. And like part of the judging criteria was like drinking a lot of beer. <laughs> <laughs> like like it, this this was no WCT event, but like, the the further the day went on, like there was a lot of bintangs drank. So 
I think Some a head loose judge. scores. <laughs> I don't think the slide Toberfest is in any danger of being uh, brought under the WSL umbrella anytime soon. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, but in that case, uh, the Dustin Humphrey overlord was very much needed in the judging tower. <laughs> I do think that the there should be a spokesman for the judging yes. uh, panel. You know, like a judge's rep or whatever the right terminology yeah, would be. Absolutely. I think that's a role. Um, that needs to be filled. And someone that can talk to people like Gabriel Medina when they have issues. You have that in soccer or football, as we call it. Um, you have like a, a fourth official. So, you know, people instantly want to go and argue over a score that's been given, but they have this kind of mediator in between. Or, or, or they could have an automated helpline that you can call. <laughs> <laughs> and press numbers for and wait in line. <laughs> Actually, I think that's the biggest improvement that the WSL made last year was having... Richie Porter uh, in more of the booth commentary aspect uh, where he could sort of relay scores, especially as the WSL is trying to expand to a market that's basically not as up to date on surfing. The scores are nuanced and having somebody describe that's really, really important. So I don't know, maybe not a head judge role, but like you said, the mediator, I think is a super important role. Also in the news, the, uh, the WSL has done a $30 million deal with Facebook to stream the live broadcasts of the events. Did any of you guys read it? Is, is this going to be the end of the WSL app? Is that no longer going to work? Is, is, the, is Facebook going to be the only output for, for... Yes, the new agreement provides for exclusivity, meaning that live events will no longer be available on the WSL app. That is from Variety magazine. It sounded off the top of your head. <laughs> <laughs> I, I imagine that you'll probably still have the app for notifications and then it will just point you through to the point you through to Facebook to Facebook when there's an event on. And it's the the platform that Facebook's going to be utilized. I think it's a new platform. It's not going to look like when you're scrolling through your news feed and you you saw a live stream like in years past. I think it's it's a totally different platform. Cuz Facebook they 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 were obviously experimenting with this through last year cuz they did various specialty heats as Facebook streaming events. Do you remember that that uh, twin fin event at J Bay that really was broadcast cool that way. There was a there was another event, and I'm trying to remember what it was. It might have been the Legends Heat down at Bells, and they, again they didn't broadcast it through the normal WSL broadcast. They sent everybody over to Facebook to do it. They've also started doing it outside of surfing already with other sports. For example, I used to play a lot of football or soccer in the UK, and below, so like Peninsula leagues are now broadcast live on Facebook. Right which is awesome for me. I can watch my mates play football at home. That's cool. Yeah. Did That's you see cool. that the Nasara Rodeo was live on Facebook as well? Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Great. I can watch my friends at home. I can, I can now watch my friends getting run over by a bull. <laughs> yeah, I was going to uh, say, what do you guys think about the kind of commentary aspect of Facebook Live? Because it usually has like a live stream of, con- uh, of comments. And I don't know, there's kind of a... a a good thing about that, you can kind of see the barometer of what people are thinking. But there's also like it really opens up a lot of kind of weird xenophobic views and nationalism and flag waving. Like people are at least it's not anonymous comments, but it's still like it, it does bring out like quite a lot of negativity. I was about to say, there's a lot of people that don't care what they're saying. That's <laughs> kind of Facebook as a whole. It's kind of this, <laughs> it's this big dangerous thing, isn't it? There's oh. lots of horrible comments and YouTube as well. Yeah. So okay, so th- that's a. I totally agree with you. And I know it's a huge, it's a huge, huge topic discussion. <laughs> and, 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 it, and it's a super interesting one. And, you know, this is probably not the right podcast to get into it in a lot of depth on, although I've been following it closely. And, and I say this as someone who has a lot of very, very close personal friends who work at Facebook. 
I'm one of those people that are just like used to be a big advocate of Facebook and uh, and my kind of thinking on it was anything historically which it causes better communication between people it, that you can find isolated examples of when it's a negative but it's always a net positive and I just say like the, the printing press like sure there are bad books that have been published that have caused problems but the net effect of more people being able to read and print is a good thing and and I kind of extrapolated that forwards to social media and, and I'm now kind of swinging the other way for a whole load of reasons that I won't go into but the big criticism of Facebook is um, that it's kind of an echo chamber so it causes everyone to be radicalized in their opinions whether they're right or whether they're wrong and their defense is we're not a media company we're just a platform which I do not find a compelling argument. And, I, and, and, and the fact that they are now teaming up with the WSL really helps lend weight to the fact that they are a media company, not a platform. And, and I think that the more partnerships that they consciously go out and make with content providers where they're pairing up um, and, and you know, paying money to have content to push out, you know, they, that makes them a media company. With every new one they do, they're more and more a media company and more and more therefore responsible for the content they provide. And they can't have it both ways. Agreed. I completely mm -hmm. agree. Going back to your point of things in the past helping people communicate and people be humans, I feel that being at a keyboard at a computer can kind of help you leave being a human and just say these completely inhumane things with the security that no one could, there's no repercussion. It's almost like that dehumanizing effect of putting people in uniforms exactly. to, to where yeah. you, you, you lose that personal face and, and you can say things that whilst they may appear in your brain uh, under normal so social circumstances, you wouldn't even think about saying them. You, you stop being the person you are and the human that you are and just become this monster. So you, you see two kinds of people on social media. There are ones who are writing stuff and they are clearly aware that they're going to be face to face with the people who are reading it at some point in the foreseeable future. Uh, and then there are people, and I think that we all know at least a couple of people in Nasara who write on Facebook like this, who seem to write as if no one is ever going to pull them up on what they've said and they have complete immunity and can say whatever they want. And I think you have to make a conscious choice to be in the former group all the time, even if you're never going to see the person that mm -hmm. you're going to talk to. Or sorry to add a third again, or be <laughs> the people that you don't see that either absorb this and just take it for what it is or completely ignore it altogether. So you don't see those people commenting, you don't see those people writing stuff. Yeah. And I think the really interesting question, which I don't know the answer to, and because I just, I don't know if the data is, is gathered, but is the 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 effect of all of the time i'm just thinking about all of the times that i have connected with people and had a real world interaction with them that i wouldn't have otherwise had because of facebook you know someone's in nosara and they look me up and we were old friends on facebook and then we go out and we chat and it's great or um get togethers that we have trips we organize like real world stuff that we managed to do and real human connections we make because of facebook which was all of the stuff they were touting as how they were making the world a better place and connecting people back in the early years and i don't doubt that there is a positive effect there and then there is all of the negative effects we just talked about and it's interesting just to wonder which way the scales are being tipped mm -hmm. yeah. you know um finally on the uh, wsl news is potentially we're going to lose pipeline this seems like a right old kerfuffle. Yeah. I've been reading around it and I still can't really work out who messed up what. 
it's it's all pretty confusing and, and there's a lot of smoke and mirrors being thrown out. As I'm sure you guys remember from a couple of episodes ago, the WSL have, uh, they've already announced what their 2018 season, the season that we're going into, looks like. And they've also started talking about what their 2019 season looks like. And the thing that's going to be a little bit different is, or the, one of the big differences is that they want to move Pipeline from being the last contest of the year in December. They want to move it to being the first contest of the year in February, which is is technically, it's a better window for, for Swell. Um, you look at the backdoor shootout and the Volcom Pipe Pro, almost every year they get better waves than the mm-hmm. the the Pipe Masters event in December. Oh, the Volcom Pipe Pro this year was Ooh, amazing. Epic. Yeah. Uh, yeah, listeners, if you haven't seen that, go and check out the uh, the highlight reels from the Volcom Pipe Pro that just finished. It uh, was... Just as an aside, sorry to di- digress mm. slightly, but... You watching, digress. Watching Pipeline when it's as good as it was for the, the, the semis and the finals of the Volcom Pipe Pro is the most fun wave in the world to watch. Like Chopu, J-Bay, Cloud Break, like Jaws, like... None of it is as entertaining as watching Pipeline doing its thing at that kind of size. No, I would agree. And so I'm, I'm actually very behind the move that the WSL is trying to make with, with moving this. Anyway, the problem being, any time that you want to run a contest on the North Shore, there's obviously a, like, that's some pretty prime real estate. There's a lot of people that would like to run contests out in the North Shore. So you have to go through a permitting process. That permitting process runs a long way in advance. And so somewhere along the lines, there is a dispute as to whether the WSL by default has has licenses within the dates and they're wanting to swap the contest they were going to run at Sunset Beach with a contest that they were going to run at Pipeline and just swap the dates around on those two events. They still hold the same events, just, you know, Pipeline and Sunset Beach are half a mile down the road from each other, just just swap them over. So no major change to the impact I, on the I, North Shore. I, sorry, maybe I got it wrong, but I thought they were trying to swap the Volcom Pipe Pro with the Billabong Pipe Masters. So that they would have the pipe mark. And, and, the, and the problem was that the WSL is running from January the 1st to December the 31st as a year, mm-hmm. whereas the um, city and county of Honolulu, or whatever the right designation is for the people that are handing out the licenses, run on a seasonal basis. So they do one season, the next season, the next season. And the, the, the kerfuffle came about because as far as the WSL were concerned, it was all in the same year. They were just swapping dates for events mm-hmm. that they already had the licenses for. But as far as the city and county of Honolulu were concerned, now they wanted to have the same event right next door to each other in the same season and then have 20, no, whatever, like nearly two years between two Volcom Pipe Pros. So there was that was one issue. And then it seems like the other issue was that the WSL just missed the filing date, which, which seems with no real explanation, I... I'm not quite sure why that happened. Well, the WSL have said that they didn't miss the filing date. So it's the, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors. My, my understanding is that they, they want to not move the Volcom Pipe Pro. And so what they'll, what they'll end up doing is running almost two, because there's, there's a ton of QS contests that are running in, in Hawaii. And the, the, there's, I believe that there is a, there's a, a contest already slated to go down at sunset in the window that they would now like to have the pipeline one. And so they want to move the sunset contest uh, back to December or something like that. I think I, I'm not quite sure. It is a whole weird like chess move of, of of events and licenses. But there's obviously also some other politics that are going on. So it sounded from what I read, uh, and again, this is all just what I've what I've read on the internet. I don't know any of these people, so I, I don't know what the truth of it was. But it sounded like Sophie Goldschmidt flew over to try and sort it out and was then slightly given the runaround 
and then made the mistake of going to the Honolulu Advertiser or some local newspaper or radio show and making some comment about how she had perhaps been given the runaround and then some egos got involved and, and now it's really about who, who's got the power to tell who what to do rather than just some people working together. I did like Sonny Garcia's quote. I don't know if you guys saw this. His Instagram quote. Oh, I bet he has something good to say. Would, would you like me to tell you? He said, we'll get the bleep machine out for this one. <clears throat> if I were them, I'd be like, F- Hawaii. Here we are bringing all this money and revenue into Hawaii and promoting it. Unlike other sports like football and golf who can pay to come here and don't do anything for us. Yeah, if I were them, I'd f- pull that sh- be like, yeah, f- Hawaii. You know, the guys don't want us to f- help with some stipulation in the rules. Then yeah. why should we even be here? I he needs to chill. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> right, Sonny. What, what, what's he even talking about? I, I don't, know, that's, I don't kind know. Of, that's kind of why I wanted to read it. The point he was making was the city and county of Honolulu should be more flexible and do what the WSL wants. Without because making, surfing is bringing money in. Because surfing's bringing money in. And it's and bringing a lot in for the surfers of the North Shore. Like even opportunities. More, yeah, even more money-wise. You know, it's a, it's a pretty impoverished area that otherwise wouldn't have that. And I think the general supposition as well is that if the WSL don't get their way, they have no, they don't have to be in Hawaii. They could run the whole season and not have the Hawaiian contests. And it wouldn't, it wouldn't really matter that much. The, 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 Scott Bass made a really interesting point that, that if you go back, like the Duke contest, uh, it's at Makaha, used to be the biggest contest in the world. Like if you won that, like that was the most important. Mm-hmm. Makaha's not even on the schedule. There isn't a WSL contest at Makaha anymore. And history moves on and history changes. And the fact that right now the pipe is the most important contest, like that, that could very, very easily change. Yeah, there's a lot of epic waves in the world, although... I know Pipe is pretty amazing. <laughs> but the, actually, the other, the other point there was that the, one of the arguments was that the Volcom Pipe Pro has a lot more local surfers in it. And some people took issue with the fact that changing the schedule means it wouldn't run for nearly two years. And I, I actually thought Sonny Garcia was going to come out in defense of not delaying the Volcom Pipe Pro for exactly that reason. But I guess, you know, that wasn't it. The other thing is, from a surfer's point of view, it seems like a big deal. But the actual, I can't remember what the numbers are, but the amount of revenue that surf contests bring into Hawaii compared to tourism as a whole is negligible. And the cost of shutting all of these beaches for other activities and other beach users and other tourist industries apparently is, is pretty much the same as having them open for the contest. So it's not like, it's just kind of a zero-sum game as far as the city and county of Honolulu is concerned. That's what I read anyway. I wonder what, but like, what would the opportunity cost be if you're having a contest at Pipe? What else is not happening at Pipe? Like you're having people come to the beach for the Masters. They're buying snow cones or, you know, poke or whatever. Um, I guess they're running it when the, the, the beach is shut to swimmers anyway. They've got it all red flagged whenever the contest is on. Yeah, but swimmers on. don't pay. Yeah, there's no opportunity cost money-wise there. And I bet there's way more people coming to Pipeline rather than like, oh, I'm not going to go there because the Masters are on. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I don't know what the... The article that I read was, was more pushing the point that the amount of money it was bringing in, which was in, in the tens of millions was mm-hmm. a drop in the ocean, if you'll excuse the pun. Compared to compared the people to the, the, going to Honolulu to go to the Four Seasons. The, the or... hundreds of millions or, or billions that were, were actually wrapped up in, mm-hmm. in the season of the tourist industry. Yeah, losing Hawaii would be a horrible detriment to the world tour. As you said, when Pipeline's doing its thing, it's just, I think it's so much better than all the other events. It's just, it's the marquee event. So 
I don't know, whatever needs to be done to retain that. People work together. Why don't they start the season with the Pipe Masters in, in January and then finish the season with Chopu at the end of August and fit everything in, in between? Well, I think that was the that's plan. That's pretty close to what they're doing. <laughs> well done, WSL. <laughs> <laughs> and you should learn from that Overcast app. <laughs> Jokes are on fire today. <laughs> so yeah, just a, a couple of other quick roundups. As we mentioned, the Volcom Pipe Pro took place. In the end, Joshua Meniz just beat out Jamie O'Brien in the final by 0.1 of a point. Am I right in saying a Costa Rican did very, very well? Carlos Meniz, yeah, made it through to the quarters, I think. Got a 10, got a 10 along the way. Yeah. And I want to say a 9-2 as well. Yeah, unfortunately, he did then bow out in the quarterfinals with a heat total of 2.07. So, it happens. You know, Pipeline. it happens to the best of us. And ongoing right now, as we speak, uh, they are just wrapping up the Nazare challenge, big wave challenge, which has been uh, pretty spectacular to watch. Has it though? Yeah, I was about to say. It's, it's amazing, but I don't know if it's spectacular to watch. See, Nazare, this kind of goes back to the whole big wave contest thing we've talked about on the show before, but watching some of the clips out of Nazare over the last month or two have been spectacular. I mean, like just mind-blowing stuff definitely the biggest waves ever surfed and you can get all kind of petty about whether the waves breaking top to bottom and whether jaws is rounder or not but i mean it's so big that it doesn't even matter it's incredible but then watching the light but you know but that's because there are the nature of big wave surfing is such that there are those moments and that's what it's all about watching the live contest was just like yeah okay it's big but it's not anything particularly special you know or at least the, the part of the contest that i watched watching the big wave world tour you know, the time when Nazare really is spectacular and is making the news, it's not paddle surfable. It's when mm-hmm. they have to tow surf because it's so huge. It's such a massive wall of water. Whereas actually for the big wave world tour to take place, it has to be smaller so that they can actually paddle into the wave and, and catch waves. So, yeah, I don't know. Um, anyway, congratulations to uh, Brazil's Lucas Chianca, who won the, uh, won the event in the end quite convincingly over Hawaii's Billy Kemper. Finally, in the news, very sadly, Quicksilver's global CEO, Pierre Agnes, is still missing at sea after a boating accident in the fog off Cap Breton. Well, I don't think they actually know quite what happened, do they? Well, no, the, 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 his boat was delayed coming back into harbour. He radioed the, the harbour and said he wasn't coming, going to like try and come in mm-hmm. because of the fog. And, because, and there was a booming swell. The same day, Magic Seaweed posted a video of the guys charging La Gravière and it was pumping. And um, I, I know you guys have been down to France with me, but I, I don't know if you guys have ever walked along the harbour entrance there when there's a big swell running. Mm. And it's terrifying. You've got this, the, 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 the channel in and out just points straight out into the ocean. There's no like breakwater to stop the swell coming up the channel. So you come up with like six to eight foot waves rolling up the channel behind you. And then about 100 yards in, you've got to do a 90 degree right hand turn to get into mm-hmm. the marina and get out of the, the way of the waves. But you're doing that 90 degree turn in a channel that's maybe 30 meters wide, big concrete walls. And it. it's a terrifying harbor entrance. So I, I fully understand that in fog and big swell, I wouldn't go anywhere near it. But yeah, so, so you're, you're not implying that he... Uh, came a cropper trying to get in you think something happened when he was out there well i don't know i mean he obviously held you know stopped offshore he went fishing stopped offshore rather than trying to come in in the fog in those conditions but i don't know whether like a sneak set 
caught him off or, or, or what happened. One way or another, the boat drifted ashore several hours later. Yeah, from from all accounts, that's pretty uh, typical of Agnes's personality. He seems like the guy that was like always driving the fastest, always wanted to go out in the biggest seas, always wanted to take the most risks. So yeah, for one, I would not want to be fishing out in the seas. All right. Yeah. So this this all happened, listeners. If you're familiar with the the Quickie Pro in France, this this all happened like pretty much right where the contest is, um, yeah. and they were searching for him for the best part of a day, sort of 500 yards to a kilometer north and south of the contest site. That was the area. It's so ironic too that this is happening just on the coattails of the Oak Tree Capital fueled merger between Quicksilver and Billabong. I mean, Agnes was one of the last management guys at Quicksilver to be still in place. And he was going to be the president of the largest surfwear company ever by a long shot. So yeah, it, it, it's so sad. And it's it's amazing to see the big outpour of emotion from the, the European surf community, especially when, you know, the CEO of the big surf company isn't always the most revered person. So yeah. that's, you know, seeing Jeremy Flores speak about him or Kelly Slater's eulogies. I mean, yeah, it's pretty amazing. You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast. So big announcement, listeners. Um, there's been a lot of cryptic comments that we've made on the podcast about various projects that we've got going on in the background. Um, and I'm finally able to say, and this won't be a surprise for a, a lot of the people who've stayed with us at the resort, because I'm generally not very good at keeping secrets, but I'm finally <laughs> able to officially publicly say that we have started construction on Surf Simply 2.0. So we're building a new resort, uh, a, a new purpose-built surf coaching uh, residential facility, which will be, as far as I'm aware, the only thing like it in the world. We're building it here in Nosara. We've just started construction last week, and we're hoping it should be finished by the end of August. We were 10 days ahead of schedule until today. We had a slight disaster with a cement truck, but um, we're still ahead of schedule. And it should be finished by the end of August. And then we're, we're planning on kind of moving in and testing everything during September and October and then opening the doors in November. Being part of Surf Simply now, I've been asked by a lot of people in town about this expansion and about how many more people we're going to be putting in the water, or how you're going to manage to keep two resorts running alongside each other, uh, which I try and answer, but you can probably do it more succinctly. So yeah, we're not expanding is the simple answer. We're going to move out of the old facility and move into the new one. And we're actually going from, well, we have 12 rooms now because we have six bungalows, each with two rooms in them. We're actually downsizing to just 10 ensuite rooms, but we'll still take 12 surfers each week. And then we'll probably take four non-surfing partners rather than two non-surfing partners because we'll have a little bit more space. But you know, one thing that I think is really important is to, to look at space in the ocean as a finite resource, just, just the same as we do with other resources that, that businesses are using. And uh, I don't think it's the responsible way to run a business just to come into a town and take more and more people in the water and use up that resource just because you can, because you've got, whether it's the advertising dollars or you've, you've just managed to build a good enough name for yourself that you, you've, you've got the ability to do it. Um, yeah, I just, I don't think that's the ethical way to behave on a beach or in the ocean. So, you know, the Surf Simply model has always been to keep it very small. Um, you know, we, we have our 12 surfers and we have our nine coaches that work with them and we won't ever get bigger than that. Um, so yeah, we're, we're just moving to somewhere better. And the, the goal behind moving wasn't about expanding or duplicating. It was, it was really about the fact that I think getting, making a business better is all about incrementalism. It's about just gradually every single hour of every day and every week, just looking for those little things that you can just make better. 
you know, it's funny. We, we get a lot of um, successful entrepreneurs and finance and tech people coming in and talking with them. They all have this same language of big ideas and actually something that, that I think really separates great businesses from, from average businesses is the execution of improving details on an ongoing basis. So anyway, that's a long-winded way of saying we were improving everything and we got to a point where the one thing we really wanted to improve, the sort of the limiting factor in bringing everything forward was the quality of the resort. And it's perfectly nice, but it's not, it's not like world-class where, where we are right now. It's like, a, it's a really lovely place to stay, but people aren't coming to stay there just because of the facility. They're coming because we're there. And, and it would be really cool to change that. So we had the opportunity to buy this um, bit of land that's about twice as big as the one we have now. And it, and it borders the nature reserve on two sides. And then it has its own private walkway down through the nature reserve to the, to the ocean. So it'll be fantastic because no matter what happens to Nosara in the future, this building will always face down onto the nature reserve and towards the ocean. Yeah, I, I live right by the new plot where the new resort's going to be. And I guess going back to what you were saying about the resources, as well as the waves here, we have this beautiful habitat and all these trees that the monkeys use and all the wildlife surrounding us. And I'm lucky enough to, you know, often spot a lot of the wildlife. For the benefit of the listeners in Nassara, there's a lot of people who are very, very pro preserving trees and ensuring that the nature remains in this area. So I'm just kind of wondering what you're going to do with the new resort in order to help this or whether there's going to be a loss of wildlife or habitat. Well, in regards to the trees specifically, we had 74 trees on the lot originally and we managed to arrange the building in such a way as to keep most of them. And we only had to cut down 11 trees that were over... 30 centimeters in width and only one of those was a hardwood tree. Uh, we've actually already planted uh, 54 new trees as well and then there's going to be another between 30 and 50 going in as part of the landscaping. So yeah, we'll have planted uh, like 80, 90 new trees uh, for the 11 that we've lost. You know and every new building that goes up um, you've got to cut down trees to put the building up and it always sucks but I feel like we've done it in a really thoughtful way and one thing I'm really proud of is that we've used a small percentage of the lot for actually building on and the vast majority of the lot we've actually kept as just gardens um, which will kind of become less groomed as you get closer and closer to the nature reserve so that they blend fairly seamlessly into the uh, into the maritime zone there but there's so many other factors other than just the amount of trees that are coming up and down um, you know, just like thinking about how the monkeys are moving through the area around the lot. We've been we've been putting up monkey bridges, and it's really cool actually watching the way that they uh, navigate their way down from the hills behind down to the nature reserve around the edges of the where the building's going to be. Um, so we kind of put you put two ropes in between the trees, one higher and one lower, so they they kind of have their hands on one and their feet on the other, which is kind of cool. And then there's thinking about all of the materials that you use. Um, and it's not just about using recycled materials. Uh, we've talked about recycling a bit on the show before, but whether recycling is good or bad for the environment depends on what you're recycling and where you are and how far you have to move it and what the process in order to turn the used material back into a usable material involves, usually in terms of energy as well as wastage. Anyway, long story short, um, although concrete is one of the worst materials that you can use in terms of uh, climate change gas emissions. One thing that's amazing about it is that you don't have to reuse it often. 
So it's been fascinating for me learning about the nuance of different materials and building practices and um, understanding the many peripheral factors that can go into affecting the local environment as well as the global environment. And then there's the water usage of the finished building. So we have rainwater harvesting and a whole bunch of other water saving technologies that we've implemented throughout the whole building. Here in Nosara, like a lot of places in the world, there's a water shortage problem. And um, so we've actually put a lot of money into improving the infrastructure of water that's supplied to the whole of Guiones. So uh, a lot of people in town won't ever realize this, but there'll be a lot of days when their water would have been shut off, but it's not, and it's still coming out of the tap just because of this project. And actually, we're now working with the Harmony Hotel, which is a lovely hotel here in Nasara, owned by uh, the Johnson & Johnson family, you know, who do the shampoos and all that. And, uh, and we're working with them to do a much bigger study of water usage here in Guiana. So that, that's going to be a big 10-year project that we're part of. And then there's thinking about the way that rooms are orientated towards the sun so that they're not overheating and then you're using more electricity uh, in order to cool them down. And there's things that I honestly wouldn't have thought of, like the way that the light comes out of the building and hits the nature reserve and how that can affect the hunting and sleeping patterns of the animals there. And the list goes on. And I, I wouldn't have actually even been aware of a lot of these issues if it hadn't been for the fact that the project managers that we're working with are so genuinely and profoundly motivated by a desire to do more environmentally sustainable uh, building projects. So we've been working with a company called Esfera Sustainability, who've been absolutely incredible. And we're trying to get the project what's called uh, LEED certified, which is the we're actually going for platinum lead certifications, which we should get, which is the premier certification for sustainable building and for minimizing environmental impact in, in the not just the development of the building and the project, but also the use of the building going forwards. And it looks at all kinds of stuff like harvesting rainwater and of course, you know, solar energy. It's yeah, lead stands for leadership in energy and environmental design. It's it's actually incredible. There's it's like a forty page document of different criteria that you that you go through. So we've been working through that. It's a it's a, it's a rating system that was uh, designed in the US actually, the the United States Green Building Council. So anyone just as an aside, anyone who's doing a building project in Costa Rica I would really recommend speaking with the guys at, at Esfera Sustainability. I've been so impressed with them. And, I, and I've worked with so many different people over the last decade of running Surf Simply. And, you know, there, there, there are a lot of great companies out there, but there's few that I would just say an, a, an unequivocal, I would give an unequivocal endorsement to. And, and those guys are definitely one of them. The other company that we've been lucky enough to work with is Gensler, who... You may be familiar with because they did, well, they've done a whole bunch of stuff for Google and they've just done Airbnb's new offices. They're also the firm behind all of the branding for all of the Apple stores. So they're, they're out of San Francisco originally. The founder was a guy called Art Gensler and they now have offices all over the world. And um, we, so we interviewed a bunch of different architects trying to find the right people. And when I went into their offices, which is where I met Claudia Dobles and, and another guy, Richard Hammond, and, uh, and, and those two particularly just really blew me away. And it was interesting trying to understand the process of how you get designers to really effectively see a project through to a really functional conclusion. And the instinct is to tell them how you think they should do everything. And then you kind of think, well, these guys are great architects and great designers and problem solvers, and I'm not, and I'm telling them what I think they should do 
which is not really utilizing these people's minds and brains to their best, right? So it was interesting talking with people and, and, and a lot of much smarter people than me said, look, you want to go in and you want to give these people problems. So give them all of the problems that you have, give them a list of problems to solve through design mm -hmm. and let them do it. So it was really fun spending like a month at Surf Simply trying to pick every single hole in our own business that we possibly could and then documenting it all and going to Gensler and going, here you go, like solve all of this stuff. It, with the, the old resort that we're in now, although, you know, we did design it together, we had to do it like piece by piece as we grew the business and every time we had a bit of spare money and could buy a bit more land or do some more construction we kind of improved it but one of the really important things we tried to do which we've kept in the new resort and, and made a priority is creating a space where the, the communal parts of the resort where if you come in as a person not knowing anyone it's intimate enough that you can just connect with people organically but not so uh, sort of claustrophobic that you feel like you're forced into an uncomfortable situation. So the brief that we gave the designers were, if you walk in not knowing anyone and there's a group of four people already sat down who are really good friends, anywhere that you sit, it should be that conversation doesn't feel like you have to have it, but equally conversation can spring up organically. So we've thought about the distances between all of the all of the chairs, all of, the, all of the, the jacuzzi and the fire pit and the sofa and everything. So that that's the, kind of the dynamic. And uh, it's, it's really fun watching how people use a space and, and then trying to predict how they're going to use a new space that you're designing. Gustavo Fernandez, who was the uh, lead architect from Gensler, came down and spent a week with us at Surf Simply as a guest and interviewed everyone and, yeah, and, and then put together the amazing graphics of how everyone moved around the resort and where the choke points were and where problems happened and inefficiencies in space and movement happened and uh oh it's just it's been an incredible two-year process watching that whole design kind of come to life we're gonna have a soft opening that's gonna be fun Are you guys looking forward to that yes oh, i can't wait for that it uh I, I think this is a really fun idea so what what we thought listeners was uh we didn't want to have, you know, our first load of guests just arrive and then hope that everything works perfectly. Well, we, we knew we were going to have to stress test the resort, you know, uh, not, ju and not just the, the fixtures and fittings, you know, not just turning the lights on and off. But because we're moving a complex operation with 25 staff and 12 guests and we're moving that whole flow and that whole operation into a new facility, we realized we were going to have to have some way... To, to test how it would work and find out what would happen when 12 guests and, and eight coaches and three camera crew all come back from the beach at the same time and are all trying to get, get their work done. And, and, you know, there's probably some stuff we're going to have to change from, from how we operate right now to how we operate down there. So. And, and, and one of the things that, so this is slightly tangential, but one of the things that I think is really important in just a business is that the, the, the people who work there, you know, the people who are important in their lives, their friends and their family, need to know what they're doing and why it's special and why it's impactful so that you're not going home. You know, like a Chandler and Friends and he famously always goes back and no one ever knows what his job is. You know, I've noticed it is really, really important to everyone to go home and have people know what they do. And it's been really cool as Surf Simply's profile has been raised speaking with, you know, parents and siblings and husbands and wives of, of everyone who works at Surf Simply and seeing the pride that they take, you know, by extension from, from what their, their spouse or child or brother or sister is doing mm -hmm. with Surf Simply. And I just thought it would be so cool to be able to bring all of those important people together. 
So anyway, yeah, long story short, we're going to have our soft opening week where everyone's bringing along mums, dads, brothers, sisters, all that kind of stuff. And we're going we're gonna to show all of, the, all of those people what it's like to stay at Surf Simply for a week. I love that Dennis is bringing his mum along. Dennis, our chef, is bringing his mum along. That's uh, awesome. That's just so cool, yeah, isn't it? It's so cool. So it's going to be really, really exciting. And um, if you want to follow progress for anyone who's is interested, um, I've been kind of like posting little stories mixed in with everything else that we're doing on our Instagram feed. And there's a couple of posts up there. You took some beautiful drone footage of the site uh, last week. And, and yeah, I, that took, was fun. I, I took some video of there. So if you go look back through our Instagram, you'll see a couple of little videos of, of the site up there. But I'll be, uh, I'll be posting at least one or two things every week. And actually, we'll put in the show notes as well. Uh, we have a webcam up at the new resort. And you can have a, look at the, have a look at that and see how progress is moving forward. Anyway, it's very exciting, listeners. And, uh, and I'm very excited about it. It's been very exciting from my perspective. You know, you've, you've obviously been a lot more involved, Rue, than, than the rest of us. But, but you know, I, I got to go up to the offices and sit the to Gensler's offices in San Jose a few times and I met with the architects down here a few times particularly on some of the the more coaching orientated matters but it's been really fun you know when did we start this like a year and a half ago it's even longer than that it's nearly two years ago was it but you know to 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 have seen this project evolve over that time and then when we went over the other day and I took the drone over to video and to see you know, they were basically ready to pour the concrete. They dug all the channels for the foundations and things like that. And you could see where the rooms were going to be. Yeah, that's so cool. It's, it's been really cool to, to, you know, you know, to have been involved in the creation of that. It's something I've always wanted to do is to, to have the opportunity to build a house and to instead be building a 10-bedroom coaching resort. has been pretty cool. You're listening to the Surf Simply Podcast. Okay, ladies and gents, we have a little interview coming up for you. A couple of weeks ago, uh, we were approached by the guys at Outside TV, which is a, a sort of part of, of Outside Magazine. For those of you guys that are in the States will obviously know Outside Magazine. For those of you guys that, that haven't seen it, it's a I don't know, like general purpose outdoor activities lifestyle magazine. It's pretty cool if you get a chance to... That's a very pithy tagline. They should take that. <laughs> It's a, it's a very, uh, I, I like it. It's a, it's a great magazine to just thumb through. You know, if you've got a passing interest in, you can obviously buy a magazine, like a surf magazine or a bike magazine. But, but you know, a lot of the time, a lot of us aren't that committed to any one sport and outside tries to encompass, you know, climbing, surfing, mountain biking, a, 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 anything that gets you outdoors. And actually part of the reason why in this podcast we're so comfortable going wildly off topic it, is part of, partly inspired by Outside Magazine. And, you know, we kind of, take the attitude that all of our listeners are interested in surfing, but they are also just generally curious people who are interested in, in stuff. Also, just as a little aside, so I, over the last 10 years, I've done interviews for Forbes and the New York Times and Outside Magazine and the BBC and a whole bunch of places. And no one has fact-checked like Outside Magazine. It was unbelievable. I, I've been misquoted sometimes in a meaningless way and sometimes in a really annoying way almost every interview I've done. And Outside Magazine, I was called up twice after the article was written with independent people fact-checking all of the details um, down to like the meterage between the resort and the beach. Was it quoted and could could it be verified? And I mean, it was just really, really impressed at the quality of the journalism. That's very cool to know, isn't it? Anyway, so so they've developed an online TV platform called Outside TV. And as well as streaming lots of, you know, outdoor movies, surf movie wise, they've got things like Thundercloud and View from a Blue Moon, and they've got lots of climbing and mountain bike movies and things like that. 
one of the really cool things that I think they've done, and I, I honestly, I don't know why this hasn't been done in the past, but they've approached filmmakers that have created movies and talked to them about re-editing some of their A and B roll footage to create a TV series. Uh, you know, so often when you sit and watch a movie, we did reviews of a couple of the Deus movies last year. And, uh, you know, I, I remember my feedback on them was that I, I wanted more storyline. Like they've, they've obviously taken a really cool surf trip and they've condensed it down so much that it's lost all the storytelling. And so this is, seems to be kind of their solution. So they've, they've done it Proximity, Taylor Steele's movie which was uh, where the, you had various pairs of surfers going off around the world. And again, they've taken that B-roll and turned it into a 10-part series. They've also done it with Shorebreak, which is a film that Peter King made about the photographer Clark Little. And they've taken all the B-roll and they've turned it into a 10-part series following Clark Little around the North Shore and, and, and what he does. And yeah, one of the guys from Outside TV reached out to us and asked if we'd want to interview Clark Little, which we were super excited to do. Asher and Rue, you guys are both both pretty keen photographers and, and, and our resort photographer Callum as well was there. Callum did his podcast debut. His podcast debut, so you must be kind on him, listeners. He was very nervous. Yeah. Yeah, it's not easy. As is Callum's way, he played it very cool. Unfortunately, we had a slight technical problem. Um, Clark was going to be recording his end of the conversation so we could get nice, clean audio like we normally have with our interviews. Unfortunately, something went wrong with that. So we had to rely on my backup recording, which is, is the downstream end of a Skype call. So the, the sound quality is not quite what we normally have. So anyway, I hope you guys uh, enjoy the, the interview. And if you want to check out the Shorebreak series, uh, people in the US, uh, you can go there. There is an app that you can download and uh, you can check it on there. If you're outside of the US, uh, you can go to the Outside TV website and there'll be links to all of that stuff in the show notes. So I'm sitting today with Callum Morse, Surf Simply's photographer and podcast co-host Rue Hill. And I'm so excited to welcome photographer Clark Little to the show. Most of the listeners will best know Clark for his really unique style of water photography, which emphasizes empty waves and some pretty intimidating shore break scenarios to create these almost ethereal ocean scenes, which are a balance of intimidating yet intriguing. And they're simple yet often chaotic and uh, I think they have this really beautiful quality that invites the viewer to create their own story around them. Uh, you've most likely seen his work on his Instagram page, which boasts a staggering nearly 2 million followers. And for good reasons, his images are absolutely stunning. So without further ado, Clark, welcome to the show. All right. Thanks for having me, guys. Just for the listeners, we were planning on recording uh, two days ago, but I think there was a bit of swell in Hawaii. So uh, how's uh, the recent run of surf been? Uh, it's, it's been fun. I was able to get out there. and Actually, I've been shooting a lot of shore break and also whales lately just because they're uh, coming over here to Hawaii. So I kind of uh, mix it up from drone footage to shore break footage, which I take in the water as well as uh, with a drone. And just always trying to get something fresh. I mean, you know, yesterday there was a, uh, you know, beautiful rainbow just on the beach. And and uh, if I can get one, you know, cool shot of, for the day, uh, whether it be a sunset, rainbow, wave, whale, shark, uh, turtle, then I've done my job. And I'm, I'm thrilled to be able to capture it and, and share it with uh, people from all over the world. So when there is a, a run of surf, how do you decide between photography and surfing? Do you shoot mostly these days? Do you ever get time to go out and go for a surf? How, how do you divide that up? You know, I don't really surf too much 
anymore, but I just, I mean, early in the morning, I get my cup of Joe, I, you know, take my kids to school. I kind of head down there and, uh, scope it out. I have, of course, a lot of friends that are, you know, texting me the reports of how it is on this side of the Island or this surf spot, or if, if the conditions are good for, you know, turtles or sharks. So we have kind of a network of people kind of going back and forth. So it just all depends on conditions, swells, wind, you know, clarity of the water. It's just all these elements come together. Um, and, uh, you know, I just try to make a calculated guess on where to go. So, Clark, if you're looking at the ocean and it's all gray and miserable, but the surf's really good, is there a little part of you that's like, well, I can't shoot today, so I better go out and get some waves? Um, I go out whether it's rainy <laughs> or shiny or cloudy. I mean, a lot of times, especially if it's good. If it's good, I'll go out there and I can sometimes capture, you know, maybe a black and white or if, you know, there's a bodyboarder taking off on a 10 foot shore break wave. Sometimes that's dramatic and you don't need sun. And, and a lot of times I'll shoot for a couple hours and, and for some reason, uh, if I put in the time, mother nature delivers the goods and, and the sun will pop out and that perfect wave will come. So, uh, there's obviously a lot of passion involved and I am very driven and excited, uh, of course, about shore break and everything else that Hawaii has to offer. So yeah, it's rain or shine. Uh, I can get out there and, and have fun. And at the same time, I'm getting exercise for a few hours. So it's really therapy on the brain. And um, I get that adrenaline rush, even when it's not perfect. And that's what kind of uh, drives me uh, since I was a kid. I just love the shore break. And now I do it <laughs> for a living. Yeah, beautiful. Well, you, you're obviously from Hawaii. Do you remember how you first fell in love with the ocean? You know, when, when I was a kid, uh, my dad, we used to live in town, and uh, my dad used to take me just to the beaches right at Waikiki, at a place called Walls. And we, we used to go out there and just boogie board, uh, play in the ocean, boogie board. And, uh, and that was kind of my first taste. And I just loved the feeling of riding a wave. Uh, whether it's body surfing, whether it's on a boogie board, just that feeling, you know, moving all the way to shore to the sand. And uh, it really thrilled me and, of course, my my brother. And uh, we both ended up doing things in the ocean and making careers out of it. So this is just a footnote uh, um, recorded after the interview that I've added in for listeners who may not know. Brock Little was Clark Little's brother and, and Brock was one of the most famous big wave surfers of the last 20 years and a wonderful character and he sadly died of liver cancer in 2016. And um, then I started surfing uh, on the North Shore. We moved to the North Shore when I was about eight, I think. Jeez, we've been in the, you know, my dad and mom used to drop us off in the on the beach and me and my brother would spend the day there. So, I um, mean, we really got to get good at, you know, swimming in the uh, ocean and and understanding and getting a good feel for for waves and and how to uh, you know put yourself in the right spot to to get in that barrel. Yeah, well, sounds like a pretty good way to grow up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, we had a beautiful lifestyle for sure. So your your father was a professor of photography in Hawaii, wasn't he? Yeah, my dad uh, actually taught photography for geez, thirty years. So. Funny, we, we actually came to Hawaii. I was actually born in uh, Napa, uh, California, and my dad got a job teaching at Punahou in the 70s, Punahou High School, um, teaching photography. So that's 
literally how we ended up coming to Hawaii when I was one years old. We packed up the bags um, and uh, we lived on campus in, in town and my dad taught photography and my brother and I went to school in town at Puno. And so I guess you could say photography is in the blood. Um, I never really, I mean, I went in the dark room a lot with my dad through the years and you know, learned a little bit, showed me how to develop. This is all film, uh, film stuff. And, uh, I didn't, you know, like go into it heavy until the digital era about 10 to 10, 11 years ago when I, when I first started and he gave me a few tips and stuff, but it's just interesting how it all kind of came together. And, um, I don't know. It's just, I think it's back to my, my passion and the shore break. And I just figured out the camera, had some friends, some other photographers on the North shore. Brian Bielman probably was the main person who gave me some pointers and tips that uh, really helped me kind of through the trial and error of five years, I would say just by telling me this is how you set it up. Cause um, I wanted to shoot shore break and I just went to his house and, you know, he's the one who recommended a camera a housing and a, and a lens and it, it really that really helped me out of course uh, i had to go out there in the big shore break and get the shot um where a lot of these guys i guess weren't too into it everyone was kind of shooting pipe in the back door and trying to get that cover shot for surfer and surfing magazine and i just ended up going into the the shore break and i love it because there's no one around at least at that time and you know i could be in my little happy place and and capture really you know kind of art art you know waves just glass sculptures different backwashes and and big sand monsters and just fun fun things that i really enjoyed you know you and you and brock both went on to become incredibly successful in your respective fields it's always amazing to me when you see two people come out of the same family uh you know and it seems to happen a lot in surfing and and i was just curious if you could talk a little bit about uh the role that your your parents played in shaping you and Brock into, into being the, the, the successes that you became. Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, if I'm kind of going back, I'm, like I said before, we were, we were at the beach and, um, from, from a very young age and actually my parents took me and my brother down to the Hollywood surf center. Um, and we took surf lessons back when, geez, I don't know, eight, I was seven. My brother was maybe eight or nine. And so, that's when we just first obviously started to surf and and we met a lot of cool local people, you know, on the North shore that would kind of watch over like Marvin Foster and Carrie Terrakeen, a bunch of, bunch of people from the North shore that really took uh, my brother and myself um, uh, under their wing. And, and we had a lot of, a lot of friends uh, from a young age. Um, and my brother always, of course, was charging i mean from when he was very young you know big haleiva huge waimea and he gained just so much respect for doing that and i was just the little brother that would kind of hang around uh under my brother you know and uh you know i would say yeah brock's my brother and i was real proud of it because i mean especially after the eddie i think it was the 90 or 91 eddie when he took off on that huge i think 30 foot wave and got a barrel and yeah, and that was kind of his first. Um, well, not his first, but that was one of his. I think that put him obviously on the map and, and gained a lot of respect from from Hawaii and actually globally. I think. Um, and so, like I said, I mean, I used to go to my brother's house and take all his <laughs> gotcha clothes and, and uh, Arnett sunglasses, and I used to kind of 
scab off all of his uh, goodies <laughs> and uh you know, and 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 towards the end, he was doing the the opposite. Um, you know, he passed away, she's a year and a half or so ago, and which sucks. And and uh, but he, he at the end, he was going to my house and and grabbing all my calendars and all my clothes and stuff and giving it to all his you know stunt friends. And so it was kind of neat, you know. And I, and for both of us, we we have an awesome relationship when we were kids. Um, you know, I, I would what I look up to, you know, if I had any problems, I would call my brother and he would take care of it, uh, always. And so, yeah, we just lucky we had an awesome relationship all the way through and he ended up going, you know, surfing huge, you know, outside, uh, YMAM and, and all around the world, of course. And I, I used to surf the shore break, which I just was absolutely fascinated with. And, just to, you know, I mean, same thing, no crowd. I'd take off, pull into a big shore break wave. I don't need to make it out. For me, it's just the thrill of making the drop, making the drop and, and driving in this big, you know, heavy tube. And, and that, for some reason, that really, you know, thrilled me and um, funny. And then later in life, another skip from 97 to 2007, I picked up a camera, did the exact same thing except without the board i used the camera and shot the pictures and then ended up sharing the pictures which struck a nerve to people from all over the world um because they really probably haven't seen the inside of a huge shore break wave which actually can be gnarly but at the same time beautiful and nobody was doing it so yeah i just i just ran with it i shared it actually with my brother was probably the first person i sent all my first images and uh He's like, holy crap, Clark, that's that's pretty cool. So I shared it with some other friends, and I think it was Ben Marcus and some people at Surfer, and then they just said, holy crap, I think you got something. It's amazing the way it, it kind of evolved. It seems almost out of a, a happy accident. I, I heard the story, I think, of your, your wife bought a photograph, and then you were like, yeah, I can do better than that, and you kind of made her return it. Is that is that the story? Yes, yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> crazy enough. Uh, she, she did, yeah, she, my wife. Bought a picture from this place, uh, Pictures Plus, and brought is a picture of a wave. And uh, she 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 brought it home, and I I said, "Honey, what are you doing? Don't buy a picture of a you know shore break wave. It was taken from this you know this side of the Bohemia Bay." And I said, "I'll go out there and I'll I'll shoot one." And it just kind of inspired me to kind of go you know tell tell her that that I can do it. And uh, I I went out there, and that that that's seriously what started it all and and it was kind of overnight right i mean it was kind of like a it was almost like a rock star kind of number one thing it, you, you put it up and it kind of just exploded very quickly so initially i mean there was no plan people asked me oh well, yo, you got a you know killer program how you <laughs> you market yourself i'm like dude there's there's no there was no plan <laughs> i mean how, how can you plan i couldn't go back 10 years ago i didn't have a camera i mean hello I, I i didn't i didn't know what you know i just was doing what i loved really and um so yeah, in the beginning though, let's say I, I started shooting with a little point and shoot. It was a night, a Canon SD 500 in a little water housing I bought for 150 bucks on Amazon. And it would shoot one picture at a time. And I was out there in six to eight, 10 foot shore break. I myself, everyone was wondering what the hell is this guy doing? And I was just shooting pictures, single pictures. There were no GoPros back then. And and no one was in the water, and which which I loved. And um, I would just get one picture at a time, and that was the the, the beginning. Um, and then I ended up getting a Nikon D two hundred with a fisheye lens and a SPL housing that Brian Bielman recommended. 
And that's when I started getting quality images where I still sell today in my gallery. So from that, in the, you know, that first kind of pro camera that I got, I was able to uh, capture some really, really good shots. And in the beginning, like you said, there was, yeah, it was, it struck a nerve. I think no one was doing shore break hundred percent like I was. I mean, I'm sure there's guys that got out there and got a couple barrel shots in the morning and this and that, but, uh, I really took it to the next level, just going out for six hours a day and, and just pulling out the stuff that I felt was, you know, worthy and, and, and were keepers. Um, and then I did a couple shows. I did a couple like, uh, small exhibits and galleries. Um, you know, then Hanahoe, which is a Hawaiian airlines magazine, I think did a, um, did a feature, man. I mean, it, 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 continue to take off i mean i had to hustle around a little bit and i mean i even went to the outer islands with the portfolio back in the day i remember and 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 shared shared uh you know my work and see if people would you know put my put my images up in their gallery and and you know um but then it turned into a lot of stuff we got an award for the smithsonian so the work was up in the smithsonian and i mean i don't know it just kept going and going and going and i just kept r- riding the wave and to this day, I still I still do the same thing. And then then you're on Good Morning America next. Yes, you know. Good Morning America, Today Show. Um, then I flew to Dubai to meet the Prince because <laughs> he loved my Instagram feed, which was the craziest thing I ever did. Um, <laughs> I love the way that uh, the Dubai royal family will do things like that. They just want to meet someone, oh, so they just I fly know, you in. I, I I didn't like my manager's like, okay, Clark, we got a. Uh, <laughs> Uh, uh, interesting inquiry the the prince wants <laughs> to meet you and he said and you know i said well i don't go myself he said no all expenses paid you know first class me and you and 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 it was just crazy we got there the guy gave us two free iphones and it was just i mean i met him for 15 minutes and we stayed in a five-star hotel and gave us a you know i didn't spend a dollar and it was i mean it was really neat and the guy was very very uh, cool because he loves you know the outdoors and he loves spearfishing and skydiving and um so we kind of you know were able to uh kind of thought same thought process and and uh, both enjoyed the same same thing so it was a neat experience but yeah things like that that happened you know in the short 10-year career of mine uh kind of like I kind of go wow that was that was kind of weird just went to the Middle East and met the prince and I mean you know and then like I said the Smithsonian and you know the Good Morning America and all these all these different things I keep thinking okay so you know what's that's got to be the highlight that's got to be it you know I mean yeah not but that then now you're on the now you're on the Surf Simile podcast so yeah. you've really like <laughs> hit the now you've talked I'm out I'm raging now aren't I flaming um, <laughs> and, and it's all good man I'm stoked I mean like the outside TV thing is insane I'm stoked that those guys are you know uh, working together with them and, and they're supporting you know our our uh, TV shows and and everything so yeah it's it's been a wild ride not super easy but when you're living in Hawaii you you definitely have an advantage you know we have so much beauty here and all I'm here all I'm doing is basically capturing it and sharing it and um and I'd be lying if I said I didn't appreciate all the love that people you know gave me in my Instagram and my Facebook I mean I, I do. It, it is important, and it does. It does drive me um, when people appreciate something. I mean, if I'm shooting some whales and getting chicken skin and going, "Holy Moses! I can't believe these, you know, things are jumping or flapping," and then I share that piece, and 
it, it, you know, gives them that same feeling. If we can, if I can do that, then kind of, I feel like I've done my job. So just to follow up on something that you said a minute ago, um, outside magazines currently making a 10 part series on you as a follow up to PK's movie shore break. What's the experience of being on the other side of the lens? Right now, I'm just stoked to have the support, and I'm glad Outside picked up our TV series, and people can actually go online to OutsideTV.com and and uh, download the uh, free app, and it's a neat thing for people to tune in and 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 find out they want to be a Clark, <laughs> be Clark Little, and get kind of get all the little tricks of the trade, and and um, see how I go about my my daily thing and how I capture my shots. So it's kind of a neat. Uh, I I enjoy it. I enjoy you know, talking about, you know, what I do. And I don't, in the beginning, I was a little protective and didn't really want to share um, everything. And now I'm, I'm to the point where I'm, I'm kind of stoked on it and don't mind giving people some of my, you know, secrets and let them go out there and, and have fun. I mean, that's what it's all about. At the end of the day, we're all out there in the shore break. You know, I loved what you just said. I got into doing water photography a, a couple of years ago when I, I had to stop surfing for a while and I threw my back out. And there's this shore break near near where we live and I was swimming around taking photos inside. And, and in my head, I'm like, I am pretending to be Clark Little. <laughs> you know, and I've seen on on Instagram, there's like, you know, there's hundreds of people out there who, who are sort of following in your footsteps. And, uh, you know, how do you feel about that? Do you feel, do you feel proud that you've kind of given, given this this pastime, this hobby to all these people, or do you feel like, Hey, this is my thing. Go and find your own. Thing. I, okay. Well, I love it. <laughs> I'm stoked, man. I mean, I'm, I'm glad that something that I, I enjoy so much. I, I, time it's funny. I, you know, I, I go back 10 years ago, like there was no one out there. Um, now I, you know, you said there's hundreds, I'd say there's probably millions uh, of people out there shooting, you know, with the GoPro and you all over the world, Australia and, and you're mentioning kids. Yeah, kids kids love it. But man, there's people out there in their 60s, 70s. I mean, everybody's trying to do it or or, or I should say is is doing it. I mean, shooting, short break, running, you know, running around in it, you know, tossing around, getting getting in the shot. And and there's a lot there's a lot going on. I mean, you know, there there's not just for the kids, let's say the kids. Like when I go, I go on tour and meet a lot of people and the first people that come up to me are the parents and they go, Oh my gosh, look, look, you, you inspired my kid. He look at, look at, here's his shots. And they're showing me the shots and they're so excited that their kid is out there doing something positive um, rather than sitting in the you know room on their Game Boys or Nintendos or whatever they call them nowadays. Oh, um, you just you just dated yourself then, I think. <laughs> yeah, so they're out there, but they're out there having fun. They're getting exercise. They're learning, you know, getting ocean awareness. They're learning computer skills, uh, how to edit. And a lot of these kids are are selling prints um, and learning business. So there's such a big positive thing. Um, that's kind of coming out of it, I feel, for the next generation. And, and going back to what I was talking about before, about like, you know, protecting my business and, you know, was I bent or pissed at, at people for, for copying me? In the beginning, I'd say a little bit I was. I was like, oh my gosh, there's another Clark Little walking down the beach. And then there gets to, there, 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 you know, there's a point where I'm like, you know what? That dude down there and, and that other dude, they're out there having the same thrill and fun as, as I am. And, and so... I, I can't fight the system. I'd lose sleep, you know, every night if I was like concerned and worried about it. So I just kind of embrace it and say, Oh, how you doing? I meet a lot of people on the beach and take pictures and, 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 and just embrace it. I'm just like, I mean, so long you don't go right in front of me on a perfect <laughs> six foot barrel, um, <laughs> everything's good. But, uh, 
but yeah, no, most people have respect. It's just like, you know, surfing, right? You don't drop in on, on each other. And, and that's kind of how it is with shooting. You know, if you're in your spot, you don't go right in front of the person and shoot. And, and most people get the, get that. And, um, yeah, no, I, I, and so this going back to the outside TV, uh, um, I, I definitely do give a lot of tips and I don't mind it. I mean, they can go out there and give it a whirl. Um, when the waves get a certain size, it definitely thins out and, and it's not as, as crowded just, just because it gets kind of gnarly and heavy. And those are the fun days that we can go out with a few friends and, and it's pretty, uh, pretty empty and, and, and still get some, some beautiful shots. Hey there, Clark. I'm Callum. I'm one of the uh, photographers here at Surf Simply. Um, you mentioned there's a lot more people now shooting in the water, which is obviously a really good thing. And um, with things like the GoPros and camera technology just advancing at such a, such a fast rate, do you think with so many people in the water, there's, there's much scope for new perspectives in the surf photography world? Or do you think maybe everything's slowly being done? I mean, there's always, every wave is different, of course. With with a GoPro, anybody can do it. Yeah, they can get into the inside of a barrel and, and capture some pretty cool stuff um, with technology. Even the drones, uh, you can get up there and get some some cool things. But I'm not concerned. I mean, you know, I've seen some stuff out there that is really good. I've seen stuff that's better. I can swallow my pride and see stuff that's hey, that you know, that person got something new and and something different. And I'm I'm a little jealous, but I'm impressed. So I'm, I'm kind of like impressed you know, embracing it and just rolling with it. Um, and, and honestly, if I see something different, it's a good thing because I'll say, okay, well, Hey, I'm that. <laughs> instead of fighting the system and, and complaining about it or saying, Oh, that guy's junk or whatever. I'm, I'm kind of going, okay, well, good. Uh, how can I find a way to get something better? Um, and it, it keeps me driven and, um, technology is rad. I mean, you know, I was talking with PK, the director of the, the film and, we were just saying one day there's not going to, we're not going to be carrying. We're going to probably go back and say, wow, I used to have to carry this 10 pound Nikon camera. Yeah. Right. And now, I mean, you're, you, you hold up a little, I don't know, feather and with a little iPhone and capture the same quality. Um, I mean, it's there like yesterday I shot a, I shot a beautiful rainbow with my, you know, iPhone X and I swear the, the quality was just as good as my, <laughs> As my Nikon, I'm like, holy macro, man, that it's really changing, you know, technology. And, and I love that. I love the fact that I can shoot some insane 4K video with my with my iPhone as well as get some pretty impressive stills. Have you had a play with the uh, 360 cameras yet, just out of interest? We just got one last week and we've had a whole bunch of fun with it. Uh, I kind of did once. It was kind of, I, I don't know if it was working right, but just turning it on and off was a little bit weird. So I didn't. To answer your question, no, I haven't got buck wild with it. I've seen some really incredible stuff, um, but I haven't, uh, I haven't played with it that much. So just to switch gears a little bit, I'm sure one of the most common questions when somebody is looking at uh, some of your work in photography is how in the world does he deal with some of those beatings? So um, I was wondering, like, when you're running towards a six-foot barreling shore break, I mean, do you have any techniques to handle the kind of beating that you're about to deal with? And more specifically, how do you not hit yourself in your own head with your own camera housing? That's the bit that always scares me. First of all, I mean, nowadays I, I check out this, the, the wave conditions a little bit longer. Um, a lot of it is timing and knowing where that wave is going to break. So if you got a big, fat, thick wave, if you put yourself in the right spot, 
you should be able to capture the shot and get under or through the back of the wave without even getting sucked over and smashed. So that's my goal. My goal is to get the shot in the impact zone, right? So it looks gnarly and warbled and, and cool and, and get out the back of the wave. That being said, uh, it doesn't always go that way and you get sucked over the falls. So like, okay, so the housing, you either hold it on real tight or you have, there's a leash on it that's really short. So you put your hand, if you put your hand away from your head, the camera can't reach your head because it's only got a short leash. So that's kind of important. Um, or you can hold it like a football when you're tossing around just to keep that camera compact and, and away from you. I mean, Hey, one conk to the head and you can knock out. So, um, I've had the housing hit my head a couple times and had staples and, and glue and stitches. Um, luckily that was it though. I didn't, you know, get knocked out or anything. And, um, but yeah, I mean, and, and it's just being in shape. Um, the more I shoot, the, the more shape I am. I mean, it's going out there and swimming for four hours is the best, uh, preparation and exercise for me. So, um, summertime, I, <laughs> probably get a little bit out of shape and I'm shooting turtles and I'm not really like treading water and, and going in and out and trying to, you know, position myself in, in big shore break and, um, and then winter time comes and then I'm back in shape again. Which have you found uh, heavier surfing in these kind of conditions or shooting them? Um, I'd rather shoot surfing. I mean, I used to surf like the shore break. I don't surf much anymore, um, but I'd rather shoot with swim fins on, get the shot and try to sneak out the back. That's what I pretty much do. It's, you don't have to worry about your surfboard. I'd say, yeah, shooting definitely is more <laughs> for me is easier. So obviously you were one of the kind of pioneers of utilizing Instagram as a means of, of marketing for your photography. Was that an active strategy? Did you kind of say, here's this new way that a bunch of people can see my perspective or was it more organic and just naturally happened? I'd say a little bit of both. I know somebody, I think it was Robbie Crawford came and uh, so yeah, there's this new thing. Cause I think at that time there was Facebook right before. So I had like a Facebook page and fan page and everything. And then, uh, so at that time, Instagram, everybody was putting things up that were in, that was the, I guess the originally, I mean, which it still is, I guess is putting something up that's instant, but I had so much, kind of cool images that I've taken over the last, I guess, few years at that time when I first started Instagram. And so I'd throw up some fresh stuff from the day. And then once in a while, I'd throw up a, a turtle shot or, or a shark. And I just feeding beautiful pictures of Hawaii. And there was this popular page at that time. And I used to kind of follow it closely because I thought, you know what, this, it's, it, it the response I was getting was really, really good. I'm like, holy cow, I was growing really fast. I'm like, something's going on here and, and, and it seems like it's going to take off. So I kind of ran with it. So you could say, I mean, half of it was just organic and half of it, I was strategizing a little bit on how to post how many, you know, every four hours, put up a post and try to get on the popular page. And I was playing the game a little bit and, um, it kind of, it, it worked. And it, it, it went really quick. I was able to get up, you know, to over a million pretty fast. And, um, and a lot of it was, I was doing a lot of things. I'm still, you know, went on tour with Hurley for the short break movie. I, 
I'm out there, you know, I'm shooting all the time, meeting people, going to the galleries and, you know, doing uh, meet and greets. And so I kind of working on both, both ends, but Instagram is a powerful tool. So like, let's say if I was going to, if I was like right now, if I want to hop up and say, okay, I'm going to do something in New York tomorrow. If I put a post up amazing, I mean, you can get hundreds of people to show just that's how, you know, powerful Instagram is and you don't have to pay for it, <laughs> which is crazy. So it's just reaching, you're reaching a lot of people, um, by the push of a button and, uh, it, so business wise, it, 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 it works really good. And I, like I said, it just, it's, it's good to put smiles on people's faces and, and share the love, which we need more in this world. So, um, if I can make people happy, uh, uh, like, you know, it stokes me out. And do you find that photography resonates more with someone who's kind of an advanced surfer who can relate to the image and, and it can kind of think about that fleeting second. Cause it is pretty fleeting, like a barrel like that, or a more novice or a non-surfer who otherwise would have never seen a situation like that. You know, that's the funny thing, like for, for, you know, like, I guess my business or what I, when I go to different places and meet people, a lot of them, um, are just not even, don't even know about the ocean. They're just kind of captivated or they enjoy just the, the works of art. I mean, a lot of the pictures I shoot are like backwashes and a lot of it, and even the drone stuff, it's just abstracts and people just get a good vibe or a good feel for it. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, you definitely get the surfers. There's no question, you know, big barrel. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can vision that and know where I'm coming from and how gnarly it is, I guess. But then you get the other side of of it and, and people that never even... I've had people email me say, oh, I don't even like the ocean, but gosh, I love the images. So I think it's just a mix of 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 people from all over the world, um, inland, near the coast. Uh, it's just... It's... I. I'm very fortunate that, that, I mean, you know, I wouldn't be doing this, you know, for a living if people didn't enjoy it. And so I'm, I'm, I'm stoked. Yeah, of course. You know, and, and I, we, we were talking a lot on the show recently about the new uh, BBC series, Blue Planet 2. I don't know if you've seen that, but uh, a good friend of mine was one of the cameramen on that. And, you know, I, I love the way that, that David Attenborough and the BBC with that series are doing environmentalism, not by talking a lot about the, the, the problems of, uh, of uh, you know man's presence on the on the planet, but just by showing things that are beautiful and making people fall in love with the ocean, uh, and then you know the act, the activism can kind of come later. And I I don't know. I, I guess I just wanted to thank you because I feel like you've done that as well. You know, just showing making people fall in love with the ocean who otherwise might not care about it. I, I think that's really important. I guess it's not really a question. Yeah. <laughs> no. No. I mean, I I agree. I agree. I mean, it's it's awesome. I mean, giving people that that vision and, and, and that vibe. To wrap up, Clark, uh, is there anything else you'd like to say about any upcoming projects that you're working on? Yeah. Thank you guys for having me. And, um, big thing, I think, uh, just to, to, to drop is, is family too. You know, that's a big part of my life that I didn't touch on. And, um, I mean, of course my brother, but, uh, just, you know, my wife and my two kids. And, and if without that balance, um, none of this would, would be, you know, I, I need that balance and it's part of my life. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure having you. All right, you guys. Thanks so much for having me. I had a great time, and uh, we'll catch up on the rebound. Aloha. Okay, we have a listener email from Gary Hoover. 
Um, and this goes back to the last podcast where we were discussing helmets and surfing. And actually, you were kind of saying that you, you think it would be nice for surfers themselves to just start wearing the helmets as opposed to, you know, some outside enforcement by the WSL or whoever to, to make us wear helmets. But he's, he's asking um, two questions, really. What are the pros and cons of helmets and just about other safety gear that we should or could be using? So you, you guys can probably help me with this. What are the pros and cons? I mean, we've got obviously safety. You can have protection from the elements, um, you know, wind blowing into your ears or gaff helmets protecting your eyes from the sun, which is, as we're finding out, pretty important. Rue? Well, I think it all just comes down to data. You're right. It's just like the seatbelts thing. You, know, you just getting hit in the head with your surfboard or with someone else's surfboard or with a, a rock or a bit of reef or a fin or whatever is obviously potentially really, really bad. In two decades of surf coaching, I've only seen one head injury that, that, I, that I thought was really bad. It, it wasn't dangerous in terms of life-threatening or anything like that, but it, it left a nasty scar on, on the lady who took a fin to the cheek. But actually, that was to her cheek, and had she been wearing a helmet, it wouldn't have made any difference. So in something like 18,000 people of, of, that I've taught uh, in two decades... I'm not sure that if all of them had been wearing helmets, it would have made any difference. Having said that, if one person once takes a fin through the top of the head and it's curtains for them, like if hypothetically that was to happen, then you could argue it's worth everyone wearing a helmet the whole time to prevent that one instance. So I suppose it just comes down to data. We just need data on it. And then you just have to do a, a, a you know, a risk benefit kind of thing. And pot potentially on the, on the break you're surfing, whether it's, you know, a beach break or a shallow reef break, whether there's a hundred novice surfers also out there leashless or whether there's just one or two other surfers. I was about to say, I mean, I, I, the beach that we all used to teach, well, not yourself, Asher, but, but Tommy and Rue and myself all used to teach at, it got pretty busy in the summer. We had lots of head injuries w w when I was there and the, as surf coaches, we were always the first on scene before the lifeguards. Well, I, I actually got hit whilst coaching. And yeah. someone let go of a board and it hit me right in the side of the head and what, really like knocked me for six. One of the coaches I worked with pushed a, um, a client into a wave and was cheering and watching the client surf from behind him. A surfboard fin took his ear off. So he's now one ear gym. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Good so nickname. on the downside, he loses the ear, but on the upside, he gets a pretty epic nickname. <laughs> <laughs> my only uh, injury with a surfboard to the head was on the front of my head, just like you said, with the pressure with the cheek. Yeah, I got like 20 something stitches down my face, but it was on the front of my face. I would have had to have a face mask on. So, uh, you know, when it comes to anything uh, medical, you, it, whether it's, whether it's uh, you know, a preventative measure like a, a helmet or a seatbelt or whether it's some kind of treatment that you're going into hospital for or a drug that you're taking or anything like that, it's always a, just a, a risk benefit or a cost benefit. And so, you know, everything has a, has a slight risk to it or a slight downside. And then you just have to ask what the upside is. I mean, the, the downside to wearing a helmet is fairly minimal. I mean, they look super uncool. Yeah, they look probably, cool, I was going to say. That's probably the big one. They're so light now. The Gath helmets, G-A-T-H, Gath, which is, I think they're best company of surf helmets. They make really good ones. They're super light. You, you pretty much forget they're on straight away. They, they, you, you can't hear quite as well. And you definitely have a slightly, like you have a less sense of just freedom. It's always not, I love being in the ocean with like no leash, just shorts and no rash garden. I guess uh, with, with your hearing from a, co a coaching point of view, you could have it, an earpiece in the helmet. Yeah. Um, in fact, Gary mentioned that that could be one of the potential pros. 
do you think they affect your balance? You're saying that they're light, but what about with your with your ability to balance because of hearing? Do you think? Well, so so I, I wear one whenever I'm shooting the guests with the camera, and that's not. I don't think it's necessary to go out and wear one when you're surfing or when you're out shooting with a camera. I like to wear one because I like to be able to get in really, really close and get lots of photos. And I frequently swim up into the bottom of boards because someone kind of wiped out and then I was underneath them. And it's not that that's dangerous. It's just annoying. You know, like just you bang your head just hard enough that you hate everyone in the world for about a second and a half. (laughs) And then you're like, you're fine. So I just wear it to kind of prevent that. I would be surprised if it affected balance because that's more to do with pressure on the inner ear and that it's not like a helmet actually blocks the inner ear. You know, there'd be no restriction of, of airflow to the inner ear. So I, I wouldn't have thought that you would lose any, uh, any sense of balance and coordination. Yeah, I haven't surfed with one on all that much, but I, I don't like it. It's just, it doesn't feel nice wearing more gear. But then, you know, seatbelts in cars were kind of the same and motorbike uh, helmets on motorbikes. But, you know, the, I guess the difference there is that the data on that is overwhelming. So I think we need data. We need data, people. I think when we do our Chopu trip, I'm just definitely going to wear a helmet. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, so, like I, I want to do it just for the confidence because like I don't mind dinging up my body on the reef, but my head's the one I'd really worry about. So if I was surfing a shallow reef break, I think I'd wear it just for confidence. But then again, I've, I've never worn a helmet, so I don't know. I haven't surfed a wave where I was nervous or uncomfortable or intimidated, and that was a limiting factor in the surfing that I was doing in, the, well, in my adult life that I can remember. Chopu was the one exception to that, which I, well, I was, day one and two, I was just charging. And after I'd had a few real heavy wipeouts, I, I definitely was feeling super nervous. And I remember thinking at the time when I go back, when we go back together. Yeah, we're going back. When we go back, I'm going to wear reef boots. I'm going to wear a shorty wetsuit and I'm going to wear a helmet. See, reef boots do not do it for me. I think the downside, and when you talk about cost benefit, the uh, the cost of wearing reef boots and I don't know I just stub my toe a lot when I pop up. Oh, you, but you want to you want to put one on your back foot and not your front foot, and that the way when you suddenly get stuck on the inside and it's about eight inches deep, all of a sudden you can kick off. You can just put one foot down on a coral head and jump over the five foot of white water that's coming at you and land on your board on top mm-hmm. of it versus having to do that with a bare foot and then just having masses of like cuts all over your feet for the rest of the trip. Asher, I'm just thinking about the uh, the last two years we've been surfing together, the number of scenarios you and I have had where we've just ripped our feet to shreds, yeah. whether on urchin or corals or on flat rocks. Yeah, <laughs> just I, um, boots would have been good. It's all about the one boot, the back boot. That's the trick. So I was in G-Land last year and G-Land has like a really infamously long walkout over the reef. I mean, it's like half a mile at low tide where you're just trudging over like a super sharp coral. And I got these, Brip Curl makes these like reef socks that I got in Bali where they they fold. So you just throw them on, you walk out over the reef. And then when you get out of, in the lineup, you can take them off and put them in your pocket. That's a pretty cool idea. I haven't heard of them. They fit just like, it's about the size of a wallet when you fold them up. So oh, let's stick that in the gear of 2017 <laughs> yeah. list. Now that goes on to my gear that changed my life. Cause everyone would be taking like 20 minutes, 30 minutes to get out to over G-Land. I would just be like jogging by them in my little reef socks. And then I just fold them up, put them in my pocket and I, I was fine. Fair enough. I, t- I would say this about helmets. I mean, for, for me, Chopu is somewhere where wearing a helmet would allow me to just not think about falling and get on with surfing. And if, and that's psychological. Uh, if you're someone for whom 
you're intimidated and putting a helmet on means that that's something you don't need to worry about and therefore you can get on with surfing than just stick a freaking helmet on. Yeah. I mean, I certainly think in terms of other equipment, like whenever we're coaching in the afternoons, I always wear sunglasses out in the water. And unfortunately, as yet, almost nobody makes sunglasses that are designed to stay on your head that actually look cool. So I don't look particularly cool with my sunglasses. Now come on but now, Harry. I look more like a creepy 1950s spy yeah, with no, my... I- your C-specs with your are sunglasses built and your hat. speed. <laughs> and your utility belt and your extra large fanny pack. <laughs> I'm just so freaking cool. Super I? functional. I, yeah. But no, I, I think I, I can certainly perceive a time where not wearing a helmet out in the water might be considered a little weird in the same way that, that I remember I, when I was a little kid and we used to go skiing, we never wore, nobody wore helmets. Like you never saw anybody on the slopes wearing helmets. And when I went a couple of years ago, having not skied for 15 or 20 years, and I went back out and I didn't wear a helmet. And I was like the only guy in the gondola, the only guy in the ski lift queue, not with a helmet on. <laughs> like, I had an image of everyone in Venice in a gondola. Or a <laughs> but so I, I can certainly, you know, that shift happened quite quickly when people realized the benefits of it. And probably a lot of that actually came down to um, getting insurance and, you know, ski insurance and things. But I can, I can see that happening, but I can definitely see it happening. If somebody would make sunglasses that just looked you know, a little cooler and, and stayed on your, stayed, still stayed on your head, I could see more and more people wearing sunglasses out in the water. Just back on the overall conversation of protective gear, like helmet, you know, unless you're surfing pretty extreme waves, as we've said, the data is just not there to say that it's super important. But mm. I think that much more quick to be adopted is going to be sunglasses, like you said. Because, I mean, even think about 15 years ago, not that many people wore sunscreen. Yeah. You know, people were wearing way less sunscreen and now we know how bad that is. So, I mean, my eyes get, if I'm not wearing sunglasses teaching in the afternoon, That's I, brutal. I have I'm real fair skin, blue eyes, and I get toasted by the sun. So I, I can see that being a big thing. So I, we, I can't remember if we've spoken about this on the show before. I know we've talked about it between ourselves. Like if you look back at 1920s, tennis you know where they're wearing like long pants you know trousers yeah. and like shirts really smart shirts because that was just kind of what you wore and everyone wanted to look good and then you know when they everyone gets more and more performance orientated and so what's cool kind of changes the reality is that in in some number of decades in the future surfers will be going out wearing speedos probably shaved like swimmers wearing certainly a gaff helmet and a pair of <laughs> c-spec sunglasses yeah <laughs> That is nearly all the time that we have for this episode. Uh, Very quickly, we have our What to Watches, Tommy. It's a clip called Further, and it's on uh, CJ Nelson's Vimeo. It's got appearances from Corey Colapinto and a guy I'd never heard of before. Actually, you might know him, a guy called Kyle Juras. Kyle is from Santa Cruz. But it's it's longboarding. You see him walk down with these big, heavy, nine-foot-six-plus single fins, and, you know, you're expecting them to paddle out in shin-high waves and go in a straight line. But it's radical. I love it. They're turning these boards top to bottom, throwing chunks of spray and doing the nose riding stuff as well. Man, it's amazing they could do all that without traction pads. <laughs> and with one fin. <laughs> but yeah, it's brilliant. I really like this clip. So. Have you, do you know the board? You should get the board that they're riding. It's called the Guero. The Guero. Guero, yeah. It's, it's a dead ca- kooks one, right? It's, uh, it's made by CJ Nelson's company, but okay. Eden Saul, the shaper for dead kooks, makes it. Yeah. They look so awesome. Sick. It's one of the best clips I've watched recently. So thank you for, for putting me that way, Harry. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, Asher, what you got for us? Um, Wade Carmichael is a rookie on the World Tour who I'm very excited about. Yeah. And his new edit is insane. 
And Wade has a striking resemblance to our friend Wade, our guide in the Mentawis, Wade Hall. Oh, he also looks like Bodhi out of Point Break. <laughs> yeah, they, they look the same. They kind of surf the same. <laughs> anyway, I'm really excited about him on the world tour the next year. Um, so yeah, check that clip out. Um, my uh, little suggestion for you is a new edit from Taylor Knox, which Rue alluded to earlier in the show. Um, it's called Apply Pressure. And uh, yeah, I think it's pretty cool. You know what? Taylor Knox stopped surfing on the CT a couple of years ago and hasn't released a ton of stuff recently. If you're sick of seeing people leaving the wave to go up into the air, yeah. then this is the movie for you. This, this, this is Taylor Knox coming back with big, aggressive, top-to-bottom power surfing. And, and I think every bit as current in this video as he was, you know, 15 years ago when he was on the world tour. Oh, I, I love this uh, movie. And I mean, maybe this is just my imagination, but watching it now, uh, having watched a lot of John John, it looks like there's a lot of what John John has taken. He's taken from Taylor Knox and the way that he does his turns. That big and it, yeah, it's, it's so freaking cool. The one very minor criticism that I'll make of this movie. And, you know, when you watch like a nine minute movie and it's now, now to me, that feels like pretty long. It's a commitment. Yeah. It, that was over before it begun. It was, I just sort of started watching it and suddenly it was nine minutes and the movie was over. It was mm-hmm. so cool. The one thing I would say is that one of the beautiful things about Taylor Knox's surfing is the way he connects maneuvers together. And there was too many clips in it where it was just showing one big turn. And I'd love to have seen his connection of yeah. more turns. Cause that yeah. was, that's really more like complete waves. Yeah. Cause him and Curran really like that, that. That's what is so amazing about their surfing, you know? Yeah. yeah. Taylor Knox sidebar is 46 years old. It's not that 30, old. 30 years <laughs> surf career now. That's amazing. Yeah. Very cool. Rue, what have you got for us? Well, actually, I was going to recommend to listeners, Asha had put in a lot of time going through all of the edits from the week. And, and every Thursday or Friday, he'll send them through to me. And then I upload them all to Surf Simply Magazine. And they used to kind of sit on a little bar down at the bottom, but we've just reorganized the magazine a little bit now. And they sit on a nice strip right at the top. So they've got the, there's the one lead article at the top, which at the mm-hmm. moment is a little essay by Matt Arney about a trip he made from the UK down to Morocco on uh, via trains through Europe on a little surf trip, which is kind of a cool story. But we have the four, Ash's four best surf edits of the week. So listeners, just put in your reminders every Friday, check out surf edits on Surf Symphony Magazine. And that is a very good way to consume surf media. I feel like there's so many surf edits now that it's it's like a lot of noise to sift through. Let us sift through it for it. You don't exactly. have to watch them all. You don't have to watch all 25 that come out of the week. No, you don't want an algorithm telling you what to watch when you could have Asher telling you what to watch. <laughs> come on. An Asher rhythm, if you will. An- <laughs> <laughs> that might be the podcast title. <laughs> With the Surf Simply magazine, there's a lot of people writing for the magazine who I don't know as being part of Surf Simply. So who do you have as, as writers for the magazine? So the writers for the magazine are Matt Arney, who used to be a Surf Simply coach and now runs Halo Media and is based in the UK. And is an epic dude. And is an epic dude. Uh, Kim, who is a Brazilian, who has lived for a long time in Russia and is a very just well-traveled world surfer. And he writes regularly too. Harrison Roach jumps in and writes for us sometimes. And I put in the odd article, as does Harry and Asher and Will, all the coaches. And uh, we've, we, we actually get approached by people who ask if they can write for the magazine, probably like one every few weeks. And usually I turn people down because 
I don't want it to be just like another surf magazine. You know, we don't have to make any money out of Surf Simply Magazine. We don't have to put clickbait in there or any ads. And so what we want is kind of like long-form, thoughtful, well-informed journalism. And people need to have the critical thinking skills and the scientific literacy to bring that angle to anything that, that, that touches on those areas that they're going to talk about. And to be honest, most people who write about surfing don't have that. Most people who have that don't know enough about surfing. And so there's, there's just really not very many people in the world that I feel can contribute and have the voice that we want to have in the magazine. And we're not in any rush to grow it. So, you know, I keep going through all of the applications that, that people send in and, and we will gradually grow it over the coming years. But, you know, I, I really don't want it to turn into... The inertia. You know, well, certainly not the inertia. <laughs> but I don't even really want to turn it into another surf magazine. I, I, you know, I'd like it to find its own space on the web and remain something pretty special. We actually had... A couple of emails just this week, for example, um, I'm embarrassed to say the names of the people escape me, but we had one science journalist who writes regularly for Nature magazine, um, which is a very prestigious scientific journal, and she was interested in contributing. So she and I are having a, a little back and forth at the moment. And another guy who is a surf journalist from India who did a trip recently with Chris Burkhart around the Indian Peninsula and sent me through some amazing photographs that, that they'd taken. So he's uh, just putting together the first draft um, of an article about the emerging surf culture in India. And hopefully that'll be up there soon. But those are just people that have reached out to me personally. And, um, you know, it's, it's a fun little side project. Like a lot of the things at Surf Simply, it kind of drains money and time, but it's kind of cool and fun. Okay, ladies and gents, uh, that is us for now. Um, if you want to, uh, as I mentioned before, if you want to reach me, you can email podcast at Surf Simply, or you can follow me on Instagram at HJM Knight. Tommy, how can we find you? Uh, I'm on Instagram or Twitter at Tommy Potterton. Ash? I am on Instagram at King Asher. And Rue? And I am simply Rue Hill. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, for now, from all of us here, goodbye. Bye. Goodbye. Goodbye. That was the Surf Simply podcast from the Surf Simply Coaching Resort in Costa Rica. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses for experienced surfers and technical coaching for entry-level surfers, go to surfsimply.com.